North America is getting soft, Patron, and the rest of the world is getting tough. Very, very tough. We're entering savage new times, and we're going to have to be pure and direct and strong if we're going to survive them. Now, you and this uh, cesspool you call a television station, and uh, your people who wallow around in it, and uh, your viewers who watch you do it, they're rotting us away from the inside. We intend to stop that rot. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm John Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and we're in December in episode 38. This is it. This is December. We're out of the, uh, the non-alcoholic beers now. Now we're back to, to drinking, because oh. we got the first snow of the year Ugh, uh, yesterday geez, on, uh, I know. on Monday. Well, I don't, you guys didn't get anything here on Sunday. We got a little... Where we live, little, on the top of our scattering. mountain, we lost power, because <laughs> it was like an ice storm. Oh yeah, well we got we got a slight ice storm here. Yeah. So you know you can see my power lines outside the pivotal film towers. I don't know why they have power lines hundreds of stories above the New Haven skyline. We asked for it's, it. It's a weird. Um, we wanted but, the pure power. We yeah. wanted it direct to the studio. Yeah, exactly. The lower floors have their own power, but we have separate, <laughs> separate thing going on here. They have Brett Ratner running in a wheel. Oh yeah, that's all I can. Get well, we just did that now. now after last week's, you know, we just kind of. Shit all over Brett Ratner. We decided to acquire him and for power for the bottom. We're not first. even paying him. No, 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 no. We're just letting him live. We're letting him pretend that he can do like an ABC movie at some point. Or a CBS All Access movie. Oh, yeah. No, people like CBS All Access. That may be too good for him. No. I said we're pretending. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah, we're like, you get Rush Hour 4, Brett. You get Red Dragon 2. You didn't know? Thomas Harris wrote another book in that series. Well, he did write another book, but it has nothing to do with Hannibal Lecter, I don't think. I didn't read it. Oh, I, well, I mean, he did also write other books in the Hannibal Lecter series. Meh. Doesn't matter. No. Um, ward season is upon us, Tom. Ward season? People, we have to take care of kids now? Yeah. No, we have to watch <laughs> that last John Carpenter movie. No. Oh. Uh, Amber Heard. No, thanks. I'm fine. I liked it. This is bad. Uh, but the Gotham Film Awards and the National Board of Review mm-hmm. have announced their winners. Two different winners, of course. We got Marriage Story from Gotham, uh, kind of winning everything. Yeah, yeah. It won, you know, feature. It won actor. It won documentary. It's real weird. No, but also won screenplay. Um, I don't know if Gotham gives out a director award. It won the Ray Liotta Award for best <laughs> use of Ray Liotta. Uh, it, I don't know. Did they have a director award for Gotham? I don't know. Um, but surprisingly, actress was, was Aquafina for The Farewell. Which is, so. they got one. There you go, they got one. Well, the Farewell is being oh, roundly I thought you were saying left. Gotham got one right. No, I, well, like, I well, guess we they got one right. We don't, we don't know. We don't know until <laughs> really Friday. I mean, when we're you know, releasing this podcast, at least I'll know, because I'm going to watch 
marriage story on Friday. So. Oh, I thought you meant about Aquafina. Oh yeah, like Aquafina. Yeah. Because I the feel farewell ba- finally got. Don't you feel award. bad for the farewell? Like it, when it came out, it was like this is the movie. You know, it'll get a bunch of nominations for all sorts of things. Everyone loves it. Made a pretty good amount of money, and now it's just gone. It's just pretty well, much yeah. disappeared. Off Looking the at the, of the National Board Review, uh, the farewell does. Doesn't show up at all. Dolomite is my name does. Yeah, The Farewell gets independent film. It gets to show up on the independent film list. Um, but, you know, 1917, Dolomite is my name, Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, Marriage Story, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Uncut Gems, Waves, and Richard Jewell. NBR continuing their, their trend of adoration and love for Clint Eastwood. They... Um, and I don't get it. Yeah, hereafter, I think was in the top ten list years back. Uh, uh-huh. Jay Egger, that uh, you know, firestorm of a Leonardo DiCaprio performance. I, I think. I, I think I when this decade, made when this movie. wait, is that this decade? Yeah. When this decade is over, when when you know we are truly looking back years that, from now, that might not have been this decade. That might have been right after. In Aviator. thirty years, yeah. we're gonna look back and be like DiCaprio's. Keystone performance. The thing holding everything up was, was Jay Edgar. It got us Army Hammer. I guess so. Right? Um, but here, you know, uh, it looked like they kind of went all over the place on, on National Border View. Irishman won picture. Yep. Uh, but director went to Tarantino. Uh-huh. Uh, Sandler won front cut gem, so maybe he's going to start popping up. Happy. And then uh, Renee Zellweger continuing her kind of like Unsurprising. plowing through the competition. Um and then, unfortunately, Brad Pitt got got one. Fuck that! I'm 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 over that performance. I the more I get away from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and rewatching it, the less I like that movie. I'm I don't know if it's the movie's fault or if it's just other movies' fault. Like my list of supporting actors, like that, I really want to honor in some way is very long. It is. And that yeah, includes for me. like um, I haven't even seen Honey Boy. But Shia LaBeouf would be on my supporting actor thing for the Peanut Butter Falcon, so you know. Yeah, a movie, a movie. And I that's missed. a very. Now I'm starting to feel bad about missing because like sm- that's popping up everywhere. Right, but that's a very small movie, and he, but he's just fucking great in it, and he's better than Brad Pitt and a lot of the other because pe- he's just doing more than Brad Pitt. Brad yeah. Pitt's just coasting on the fact that he's Brad Pitt. And we're talking about like reserved performance, reserved or kind of like. Less bombastic performances, you know. There's performances this year that that you know are exceed what Brad Pitt's doing. And just you know, Once Upon a Time in the Hollywood, it just as I get, it's one of those movies. Every year, I have that movie where I initially I'm okay with it, but the further I get away from it, the less I like it, and I it is drastically dropping down. It's kind of doing a reverse Last Black Man in San Francisco for me. The last Black Man in San Francisco, as I get further away from it, my, my opinion of it's improving. Oh. I think that's coming on Amazon Prime. It's either now on Amazon Prime or it's coming mm-hmm. on soon. So if you haven't seen that, it's worth a watch. Um, I, I did see it. I saw it with you. Well, you know, <laughs> to our <laughs> seven listeners. Uh, you know, as, it, as I'm getting away from that, it's improving. Um, in my opinion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's dipping. Like maybe there's a balance. And uh, maybe. This, is, this is Star Wars month, I guess. And. Yeah, balance, balance, yeah. The good and bad parts of yourself. Yeah. Good and evil. Um, Souvenir is also on Amazon Prime now. That's one of the ones that's kind of taken a dive. It's not touching anything on my... Souvenir is sure taking a dive on my list, too. On my tops. Sure taking a dive on my list. (laughs) 
Gonna, I actually think we're going to have very different lists this year. Oh, I think so, too. I can't even imagine, like, our crossover. Like, uh, maybe our crossover will let's be do, Let's soon. drink this beer real quick, yeah. and then we'll, <laughs> then we'll talk about some crossover. And not the movie you're thinking of. Um, it's it's Front Porch Brewing. And Holes. And Holes. Why? I didn't even see God, the Holes Jesus there. Jesus Christ, Tom. 11.3? What the fuck are you doing? I didn't even see that. Oh, what are you Jesus. Doing? This is the Toasted Coconut Chocolate This is a sweater. shot. This is a fucking shot. Yeah, it's... Also, I'm so glad that we're, what, seven minutes, eight minutes into this recording? And we're just and talking about the beer. Last last week, I was really happy that we took 11 minutes before any of us said fuck, and I've fucking blown that out the window. <laughs> well, we're eight minutes in. That's not bad. I, no, I've already said fuck so Oh, have times, you? Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's drink this fucking beer. <laughs> no, it's not as sweet smelling as I'd expect. Hmm. That's good. I like that. It's pretty good. It's pretty it's not, smooth. It's it's smooth, which is bad, because that's eleven point three percent. But it's not super sweet. Usually these high ABV, um, porters and stout. This is a, is this a stout. Yeah, stouts. These imperial stouts are really sweet. Last this past weekend, uh, I went to our good friends at New England Brewing. Uh, had a couple of their beers. Uh, one of them being their Burble Barrel Aged Imperial Stout Trooper. Yep. Spoilers, we might be having something of that elk soon in the weeks to come because yep. of the name. Um, and it's it was too sweet. And it was, you know, 9.5%. I had another one from them, David Lee Roth. Not spelt like an adverb, not like the singer, like David oh. Lee oh. Roth, um, which wasn't as sweet. And that kind of reminds me of this. It's it's more <laughs> cocoa forward. It's It's got a... Um, it's got a dark, dark chocolate yeah. flavor with a bit of that and, nuttiness and from the And it stays coconut. on your tongue, and it's actually really nice. Yeah. It tastes like drinking, um, I don't know, like a cold, hot chocolate? No, exactly. Yeah. Which you know is what I mean? What Not you like want from a hot chocolate, like a cold, hot chocolate. So well, the flavors. Is, this is kind of a beer I expect as it warms up will stay consistently good. Yeah. And something else I really like about it is that um, the chocolate and the coconut seem to really be fighting the. High ABV. Yeah, there's you but don't it actually it actually works really nicely. It's a nice flavor. It's you, got a nice round alcoholic flavor. Like I think, like you said, like a really tasty shot. Yeah, and it, it doesn't. It, it there is no kind of alcohol bite to it, um, which isn't pleasant. No, it's just right. It's like right behind everything. It's not like jumping up and like yeah, it making like, it, it tastes impossible like a solid, to take another sip. Of. It tastes like a really solid cordial. Yeah, good work, guys. Yeah, front porch. Front porch has consistently not not disappointed me. I was not excited about drinking this. Beer. Well, yeah, because we've been having a hard, t- you know, for some reason, despite it being cold weather season, people are just like, no, we still want to drink IPAs, and they're like, it's just piles, Mario, of fucking IPAs. Literally, they were like piled up to the ceiling. Kent, they had like hundreds of four packs of Kent Falls at this place, and they're all IPAs. Yeah, nobody wants to. Nobody Jesus. wants to do stouts. Just like. Three months, guys. Three months of stouts and porters. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe a month and two of browns in there. Do nutty, any browns. Some nutties, you know? Make yeah. one brown. Bra- brown beer doesn't exist anymore, except <sighs> in non-alcoholic form. Jesus Christ. You know what didn't exist for a long time, Tom? Was the whodunit. Mmm. Mmm. But it looks like it's going back in the style. In Ryan. style. Oh. Into style, in style. It's going to be in the magazine in style? Yep. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Johnson will love that. Yeah. His new knives out. 
Harlan started out with a rusty Smith Corona and built himself into one of the best-selling mystery writers of all time. 30 languages, over 80 million copies sold. You guys fans? I mean, I don't do much fiction reading myself. Big but... fan. I'm a big fan. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. The night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. <laughs> and your son, Ransom, did he attend as well? Yes, but he left early. I think Linda was upset. Walt would get a little Irish courage in him. He'd get into it with Harlan. What? Richard said what? Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? <laughs> you think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect foul play. Harlan Thromby is dead. Dead as a doornail. Because it's December. That's how we're going to begin that. Oh, okay. Like Scrooge. Because I watched Muppets Christmas Carol earlier this week on Thanksgiving. Oh. Still, still holds up. Still holds up. It's um, a good movie. Except Michael Caine can't sing. Uh, don't, don't ever do that again, Michael Caine. You're old. You probably won't. <laughs> on his 85th birthday, he has supposedly... Not Michael Caine, by the way. I think Michael Caine's past 85 now. Harlan Thromby has uh, committed suicide. Slitting his own throat. Mm. And he is a wealthy, reclu- kind of reclusive. Is he, re- is he really reclusive? I don't get the impression that he's super reclusive. reclusive. Uh, protective of his intellectual property. Yeah. Um, crime novelist. With a big cast of characters as his children, children-in-laws, and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Anonymously, Benoit Blanc is hired to investigate the suicide. Mm. Because, as he begins to unravel the mystery, he suspects that there was foul play involved. Mm-hmm. He enlists the help of Marta, the Peruvian, your Ecuadorian, Uruguayan, Ecuadorian, Brazilian, Cuban, <laughs> possibly Romanian. She's actually Ecuadorian. Just yeah. says it. Yeah, I know. Oh, okay. But the running joke. Yeah, yeah, of yeah, yeah. Nurse. Um, to be his kind of confidant and his uh, Watson because she's unable to lie and has a keen eye and would be able to kind of unravel, help unravel the mystery. Mm. And as the days progress, they re-see what truly transpired and the web that was weaved and um, the contentious will of Harlan Thromby's sixty-plus-million-dollar estate, plus the creative rights and film rights potentially to his crime novels. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that, that's pretty much a, it's yeah. a good description without getting too spoilerly. I guess. I guess I. Are we going to spoil? This is one of those ones where I figure. Are like, we going to spoil? Do you have the spoiler alert sound? I'll do it. I mean, I guess. I guess we'll start without spoiling it because you know. Murder mysteries don't. I guess a, a good chunk of murder mysteries is not being spoiled. You know what? I guess we don't have to spoil it. Yeah, I don't. You think, can actually probably talk about it without spoiling. I don't it. think it's. Imp- I don't think the, the the mystery that is initially the mystery is is not a keen part of the film. No, I mean it's it, there. It's there. Um, it's it it's in, it's important because it runs through the whole thing. I mean, the movie ends as the mystery gets solved. There's no there's no ambiguity as to as to who did it. 
Um, it's not perhaps as obvious as it seems like it's going to be when it starts, um, but that doesn't mean that it's unearned. Or no, that it's kind a- of one of those law and order type things where like the the guy who they said two words to, you know, that's the gardener or something like that was really like a criminal mastermind of this whole thing and they just missed it. It's like, oh, the, oh this thing and it's this guy. And they're like, oh, ha You wouldn't have loved, though, if like Lakeith Stanfield had been the bad guy in the end. I, I mean, would I'll spoil that. I would have loved that. I'll spoil that. Uh, obvious, because he's never in question. But if like just suddenly... If you took Lakeith a mask Stanfield, off and it was just Lakeith God. Stanfield from Uncut Gems. Also, that was, that was a big thing. Before we even get into the review, I just want to mention like Noah Segan doesn't look like Dodd anymore. So weird to me. Dodd from Brick. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy. I was like looking at it. I was like, what's he look like? I was like, he's like a voice actor. Where do I know him from? Yeah. And I was like, what is? And I was like, that's Dodd? He looks good. Good job. He looks like, he looks younger. Good for him. He's like, two, what? Eight, 15, almost two decades older now and looks younger. He's still. Well, he's not hanging out behind, you know, next to dumpsters anymore. He's still Gordon Levy's, you know. Yeah, uh, poor, poor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Levitt. Gordon Levy. Gordon Levitt's oh, man. secret of youth. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I don't think we have to spoil it. I think it's because uh, it's it's not it's designed as a really classic murder mystery, um, but he's kind of given us all of these like sub things. All the motives are are pretty clear and they're all pretty interesting and they're all pretty well wrought by um, and including the characters that. Are like have been kind of employed to enact on those motives. Um, so you have like Jamie Lee Curtis as the oldest daughter who's married to Don Johnson, whose son is Chris Evans, uh, Ransom. And then you have Michael Shannon as the youngest son who's married to some, I forgot the actress's name that played his wife, um, who has the alt right, <laughs> the alt right son. Who was in the bathroom at one point, you know, it's, watching it's videos a, of it's, masturbating it's, um, to videos of dead horses? Ricky Lindholm. Ricky Lindholm, yeah, yeah, yeah. From, um, what the hell is she from? The, the Garfunkel Notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, ah, now I recognize her. All right, good for her. Um, and then you have Tony Collette, who was married to the middle child, Neil, who died of cancer, and who has um, a daughter, Becca, is it? Rebecca? Um, who's it more is, woke? It is Meg. Meg. Yeah. Meg Becca. Where do you get Becca from? I don't know. There's Just no Becca in there. Meg Becca. I think that's what it is. I think it's Meg Becca. Is her official name? I think it is Mario. I'm, st- <laughs> I'm standing by Meg Just Becca. Just where Becca came from. Um, yeah, and then on top of that, you have the you have the the, the cleaning lady, and then you have um, Anna Darmus's character, and they all have their own things. They're all given their own personalities. They're not just even though they're kind of portrayed as vessels for the mystery, they're really not. I mean, there's other things in, inside of them that make their possible involvement with whatever's happening actually interesting and not just kind of like another fact to figure out. Like, people keep comparing this to fucking Clue. No. I ha- Clue stinks. I don't know what people are watching. I think Clue's funny. But Clue's it's just not- funny, but it's not like a... No, this is this is It's not much- a valid mystery. This is much more similar to... Um- uh, Perkins and Sodheim's Last of Sheila. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Or see like it. Sleuth. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a lot like Last of Sheila. Like this, a lot of the blueprint of how this is um, 
mild spoiler alert, uh, kind of like early on revealing the mystery of what right, happened. Exactly. And then that being subverted at the end to actually kind of reveal that the mystery, the, the, the answer to the mystery you thought was actually a part of a bigger ploy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some, you know, kind of presented it in a way to show uh to kind of frame somebody mm-hmm. uh is 100 listed for like last of sheila mm-hmm. like i'm a big kind of whodunit sort of asshole you like encyclopedia brown um yeah no i grew up in encyclopedia brown Me too. yeah uh but like you know the edgar Allan poe like whodunits you know sherlock holmes i have the you could see right there on the bottom the complete works of sherlock holmes i can see that um and you know this. This is really is solid in the genre. It, it, it bugs me like, like that people are saying like this is all like Clue, whereas the humor isn't like Clue at all. If you're gonna compare the humor to anything, I would compare like the kind of ridiculous sense of the humor. You know, you would compare it to something like Murder by Death, mm-hmm. a lot less racism um, than Murder by Death. There's <laughs> some racism, some, but not like to the degree of like Peter Sellers playing an Asian person. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, which is is kind of done. I mean, has a joke in it. Michael Shannon could do it. Yeah, <laughs> he just he just didn't need to. Um, but but there's a lot of kind of plays uh, from a storytelling and direction standpoint, doing you know, in doing that that I enjoyed. Um, you know, Daniel Craig as an English person doing a facsimile of an American accent of like what uh, I guess uh, the most telltale kind of besides like a cowboy accent telltale sort of american accent it's like would a be, foghorn leghorn is, accent is yeah. really similar to david like suke's perot you know protect how an english person oh, would yeah, interpret yeah, yeah, yeah. a belgian person um, um and, and so there's like little plays on there, there's i think just calling it clue is really doing a disservice because you could tell that like ryan johnson and going back to brick ryan johnson's like a big fan of noir and a big fan of like mystery yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guy knows his shit and he's lifting a lot of things people from just want Sleuth and clue is the easiest thing you can put it on because especially because you have a cast a huge cast of very famous people in it um murder by death and put your fucking famous people in it but it didn't have tim curry in it last of sheila had famous people in it last of sheila has James Coburn and James Mason and Raquel Welsh, Ian McShane. No Anthony Perkins, though, I don't think. I don't think Anthony Perkins even has, like, a cameo on that. Did it have the kid from It in it, Mario? It didn't. So, I mean... I thought for a while he was not going to have any lines. Jaden, uh... What's his name? Jaden Martell? I was yeah. like, and like, after seeing the trailer for the, the Turning, I was like, maybe that's a good idea. I'm, I was happy for, um... I think everyone here does good work. Yeah, it's it's a solid kind of journeyman sort of film. Don Johnson's like it, a little at a, a little out of his depth, and I felt that way about the, like the first episode of The Watchmen, also, where Don Johnson's like he's fine, he's good, but it, there's he's there's like a next level that his character kind of wants a little bit, he's a getting, little more depth, yeah. and he's just not able to kind of get into that. And I, I think, but I think it's also the easiest role, and and so. Like, that's the smart casting there. Mm-hmm. Like, just giving him the kind of role of kind of the individual who's kind of the scummy husband who's just after, you know, the, the dollar is yeah. good. Um, Michael Shannon was surprisingly kind of a little flat for me at times. Uh, but I think Michael Shannon was also just not, like, knew that the place for Walt wasn't to be this over-the-top yeah. kind of character. I, I, like, this movie definitely tries to rest a lot of... What would be its acting weight on, you know, Craig Evans, Armis, 
Curtis and um, Plummer. To, 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 I don't I don't know if it's resting on Plummer, but Plummer fucking he was fucking great. Plummer's ridiculous in this. I mean, that one speech when she was putting on when she was doing the injections was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even really see it coming. 40, 45 second spoiler alert for this. When, when you find out that she accidentally kind of, you know, switched the morphine and she's given him a fatal dose. Yeah. And he's kind of talking through it as a, has kind of a murder mystery plot and think mm-hmm. it's a genius idea. And then coming to the slow realization that she doesn't have the Narcon. Mm-hmm. And just the way he handles that is yeah. so fucking brilliant. It's so like great. the... Like, once again, we're talking about stacked best supporting actor years in a weaker yeah. year. Like, that's a performance. That's a, that fucking knocks the par- shit out of it. I'm talking about reserve performances. That knocks the shit out of what, like, Brad Pitt's doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Brad, let's compare that to, like, when Tex and all those guys kind of invade in um, Once Upon a Time, and Brad Pitt kind of does that kind of, like, subversion of, like, what's your name? Like, Rex something. I mean, dumber, that, that like, scene was very devil. funny. But... It's funny, but. Like, it has that kind of similar tone to it, but mm-hmm. Plummer can just sell the shit out of that. Like, he sells the shit out of, he just said, like, he's not really afraid to die. He just is, wants to make sure he hasn't left them all to rot, sort of thing, the family. And just that realization that now it's right here. You get mm-hmm. that sense of, you just get a lot of fear, but also the understanding of, I know what I've written in the will, and now i got to make sure I get all of it done. Well, here's what I would say about that, is that I think what this movie has, which a lot of murder mysteries and mystery anythings lack is a lot of heart. Yeah, no, for sure. So it's not just about the money and it's not just about the dead guy. So it's not just about the motives and it's not just about the reason, like the reason the dead guy is dead. It's about all this other stuff about like how to be a family, about like what your responsibility is to your family. Um, there's also a weird and it's- kind of sub text of you know uh, that you could you could put a metaphor of like america currently oh, on it subtext to be fair i ignore there was no subtext i decided to i decided to ignore it <laughs> because it's so just kind of like and then there's a ground down yeah, into as you. a person who's followed like for some reason ryan johnson's twitter because it pops up like on our twitter feed a lot oh nice. like he's a very woke kind of person and there were moments in that where I'm just like, I get it, Ryan Johnson. I get like you're kind of like spitting in the face of like a lot of people that kind of came after him, especially after Last Jedi and uh-huh. whatnot. But it's like, oh man, you have a really solid film that is more about family, and you know you can have that subtext of like this Ecuadorian woman with like a good heart, mm-hmm. you know, who's just better than these people. Yeah. Um, but you know, throwing in that entire plot line of um, uh, the son. Bill mm-hmm. from it. Sorry, Jaden. I'm not going to remember your name. Um, Jacob just being like, you know, a huge right wing guy and, and, you know, him even going like SJW and whatnot. Just like, ah. I mean, it was, it, that's the thing. It was funny on the surface and I think it's important to do stuff like that to make it a movie that exists now. I don't know if it needs the kind of undercurrent of like immigrants are better than than that, Americans. I don't think it like, suggests that, but it, no, no, no. But it, like, it doesn't need the immig- like the pro-immigrant undercurrent. It it's like use, it's like an immigrant versus like one percent, right? Sort of it can use that those same ideas towards, and I think it does do this simultaneously, establishing this family as being one thing and not American and not like like the one percent or whatever. But the the idea of entitlement versus non. Entitlement. You know what I mean? The idea of being 
um, appreciative for what you have. Like in this case, like the good job and like, you know, this nice family and she gets to take care of a nice man who appreciates her versus people who just kind of want more and more and more. Like a, just a general greed. Yeah. A general American greed if you want to put it there. It's, it's interesting because I was watching this comparing it really heavily to a movie I reviewed or, or I talked about earlier this year, um, Ready or Not. Yep. Which, which does the same thing of okay. like this outsider who's kind of an orphan growing up, going into this family and more, you know, this extraordinarily wealthy family um, being more attached to the idea of having a family that she could call her own now versus like these people who are clinging on to their wealth so hard that they're willing to kill her yeah. for it. Um, like I, I kind of feel like even though that script was fairly weak, like this, the at least subtext of that's done a little bit better than mm-hmm. it's done here. Yes. Um, I mean, I didn't see that movie, but just, I'm assuming it's so. Just because of the fact that, like, Ryan Johnson's he's always kind of had this problem, likes to hammer in a point pretty hard. He does that. He did that really bad in Looper in terms of, like, sacrifice and, and making up for past sins. He does that, did that so heavy-handedly in uh-huh. Looper. Um, and he does that again here. He needs to know, he's kind of got that... Um, that problem that Eggers has, and then he just needs to dial it back sometimes. Mm. He's definitely a better writer than Eggers, and like this is a much more solid of a screenplay, especially because it's, it's, it's got solid dialogue. It's it's oh, really yeah. like none of the quips, the quips that don't land are quickly kind of overwhelmed by things that do. The land. donut speech is one of the great moments of the year. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I just. Me and I saw it in a completely full theater. Yeah, me too. Me and it's... every single other person were just kind of like on the edge of our seats, just with big smiles on our faces, like waiting to see where this donut thing was going to land. And and the timing on some of the like the running jokes, like the you know the mix up of where Marta's from, um, are done with a decent enough kind of tempo mm-hmm. that they're not overwrought. That's not overdone, but it's it's at least at well, least aware enough that you notice that. You know, everyone's getting it wrong. The idea that or the you, entire example of yeah. the other running joke of, you know, I was outvoted. It's done yeah, enough yeah. to where you realize, yeah. like, then everyone just everyone, everyone out, voted, voted against, against yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's a really good point in the sense that, like, I think um, nothing here was overdone. Mm. I actually think it's, I, I don't think I've said, I don't think either of us have said, like, specifically how we feel about it, although I'm sure you can interpret it from, like, how it was said. I love... I mean, I, I, this was a great fucking time. Oh, like, yeah. I it's, loved it's it. It's fun as fuck. Um, I don't have... It's it's funny. It's it's. I think it's all the performances are good. I don't... The only performance I don't love, and it's not a performance thing, I just... I'm not, like, a Daniel Craig guy. Like, I would have loved to have seen, like, somebody else in that role. See, and I, as, a, as a person who's okay with Daniel Craig, I yeah. think he nailed it. I, I, think I just he, think... It's just, like... It's, it's weird. I think he nailed it, too, but... It's just, it like, a personal like it, bias sort of thing. It seemed like it cost him something it seemed like it was more difficult for him than it would have been for somebody who's just generally more charismatic you know what i mean yeah he's typically more reserved but i think like you see a real kind of force not force energy but it's it's definitely like an exertion almost yes but I yes, think yes, that, yes i think that kind of um that facsimile or that kind of like faux personality is is kind of important to that kind of character mm-hmm. to always kind of like have that front up especially since you know from the beginning he kind of knows more than everybody, like yeah. he, you know, just from the spot kind of speech yeah. in the very end. So he obviously has to put up that kind of like shield from the beginning. So I think, in a way, that casting works because it feels like I think it works Craig too. Is like putting yeah. in this extra energy that another actor who's naturally more charismatic wouldn't have to. Um, and so I think that actually does a service to the character. It's weird. I just I just don't I don't I don't like him. 
generally, <laughs> like in movies. Like, I don't like movies that he's in. It's just, a, like, I don't like any like of the Bond movies. he died in Road to Perdition, you're just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Road to, I did, I mean, I think Road to Perdition sucks, but that's, you know. A wrong opinion, but yeah. Um, oh, I don't, what is there, I don't see what there is to like about it. Another, another conversation. I think we've had this conversation many drunken nights before, but. I don't understand. Um, no, and I, I, like, especially people who are acting against type are great here. Like, Tony Collette is, is solid, like, really Oh, energetic. she's really solid, yeah. And you buy, like, this kind of, um, not necessarily Valley Girl, but what, what, Neo? Yeah, this kind of entitled ditz. Entitled ditz, yeah. but who believes in kind of, like, the mystic sort of aspects of it. You buy all of that. Um, you know, Chris Evans kind of doing that character. I was that, very happy for Doing him. that Captain America character, but doing it now and turning it into like a douchebag, like doing that high school jock, but doing it has the, the giant jerk. I thought he was really good, and I was pleased that he was able to shake off, like, I didn't watch him thinking like, that's Captain America. No. I was like, oh, okay, Chris Evans is back. I like, just see. He's I just doing see, the shtick, but fine. You just see a 40-year-old-ish attractive dude who's, you know, probably had it easy all his life. And I love Jamie Lee Curtis in this too. Because Jamie great. Lee Curtis has such like an unspoken arc in this. Yep. Um, you see like the reason why like Walt and Joni aren't going to get the money and they tell you that um, and, and they, they kind of like fight against that the entire time. But there's kind of like an unspoken arc that, you know, Linda's not, Jamie Lee Curtis isn't going to get either. They don't dwell into why she's not going to get it. Mm-hmm. I and mean, besides the general family aspect of like, you know, just caring about the money. But, like, Jamie Lee Curtis has enough of, like, kind of, like, facial acting in terms of, like, slowly realizing she gets angry that Marta gets it, but in the end, when she looks back, it's kind of just, like, an acceptance well, of, like, oh, this, she's is, what, this the, is my dad's game. She's the one person who doesn't need it. Yeah, I she mean, actually she's got like, she support got, from she got her support, dad. But she's been able to take that support and build something Completely real new. out of it. And so that's what she says about, like, my dad plays all these games. I can actually, And she knows the game. And that's, like, the entire the fact of, like, so when she's not she getting the house. sees the letter in the end. Right. You know, She's not getting the house, but she is. And that letter thing was a beautiful touch. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Um, in the end, she's not going to get the house, but she's going to be fine. She's like the one person who will be actually fine. You know what I mean? You could assume. I mean, all of them are. You get the idea. All of them are going to be fine. Well, I just don't know. You know, what does Walt do? Like, because he's well, you get never. Well, that Marta's going to be. She'll little... be. Fa- well, that's. Yeah. So when I was watching it, like at the end of the movie, I was like, well, Marta can actually employ all of these people to kind of do what she wanted to do and she can retain the rights to all this stuff and and everyone can still end up happy unless she decides to kind of you know tell them to go fuck themselves i will say this though and we could close on it and or we can do whatever you got music in this by nathan johnson cinematography by steve yedlin and edited by bob duxay and they're ryan johnson guys they've worked with him on all his movies i think he needs to find some new guys i don't think anything here is bad yeah but it's a little stayed. It's it's the sure, sim- I think that's why I keep saying journeyman. Like it's it's really what I guess you want from um like it's kind of like an Alan Taylor thing. I don't know if that makes sense. Like Alan Taylor he's made some real garbage movies. Like he made like I think like Terminator Genesis and I know he did Thor oh, okay. Dark World, but he did he's done some like stuff off of like Sopranos and Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and I think he did a couple wire episodes maybe. I'm not 100% sure of that. But like um What's it? Not David Simon. The guy that did The Wire. Not the guy that did Sopranos. Is that the, David Chase. David Chase is like has has hired him for the Sopranos prequel that's coming out. Oh, okay. And I kind of like trust that because like uh, it's 
it's not going to blow your socks off, but like I think David Chase is like, I just need somebody to deliver my screenplay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like what Ryan Johnson's doing, because I don't think Ryan Johnson like ever blows my mind visually. Like There's a couple shots from Brick that I love, like when a yeah. god gets shot in the head, I love. You know, um, but like he's never really been, you know, the, um, the hyper jump scene in Last Jedi is mm-hmm. beautiful. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, but he's never like blowing my mind, yeah. really, but he's always delivering a good story. He everything's is. kind yeah, of like, yeah. everything's kind of just packaged around. It's not distracting, you know, it, it's serving its point. No, but there's some, uh, there's some, there was some, the music is, um, was, I, I didn't even I didn't even most of the time I didn't notice it either and then I noticed it the I'm cinematography like, the only reason I noticed good. it is because parts I was like oh that's Waltham Massachusetts yes yeah, I know that mills that furniture store it's pretty and, like it feels cold like yeah, it, it did a good job of feeling cold but there's like a one scene when like in the flashbacks scene when they're kind of showing Chris Evans in the dark and it's just framed weird and looks yeah, fake yeah. and I was like why would this be fake one and if it's not fake why does it look so fake and then there's a weird edit when Chris Evans and um, Anna Jarvis are like having a conversation in his in his um, house later, um, I was like, "That's a that's like there's like a non-edit, like it was like a Bohemian Rhapsody edit. You remember mm. like how there's just like jumps from one person to another? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. like a couple of those. It's like, oh, what's happening here? Like these guys are fine, but I feel like Ryan Johnson, if he's gonna make these, if he's if he's gonna get bigger and bigger, and we're gonna expect more and more from him. I mean, this movie made forty million dollars. I mean, it made its money back in essentially in a weekend, um, and it was projected to make like eighteen to twenty. You know what I mean? And like you said, you saw it full theater. I saw it full theater. I'm telling everyone that I saw, like I know to go. Yeah, see word the of movie. mouth of this is is, um, is through the roof. I feel like I want more. I feel like I want more things from him. You know what I mean? The production design is fine, but it's also exactly what I would have expected. And the things that weren't what I was expected, I didn't understand, like the knife thing. Like, is that art? Is it always there? Was it generally yes. for the party? Like, what is it there for? Because this is very obtrusive. And, like, it's, it's also very che- on the nose. It's definitely wall art. <laughs> it's just so on the nose for, like, the title and stuff like that. I was like, I, I want more uh, about what the hell is going on here rather than just, like, this is a big house and a writer lives here. End. So there's books. Yeah, there's, there's a weird, like, sense. In terms of the production design and maybe the editing, there is also a lot of times where you don't, like there's a for being what is ultimately like a one shot location, like a like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a four wall sort sure. of um, a box kind of episode of a movie. It you never get a sense of where you are in the house. Like yeah. you're like, what? Okay, I get his third floor study. His bedroom's on the second floor. How do you get there? It's a really narrow hallway to get there, and like, you know, and like. Oh, you go back to the office where Frank Oz is, has the attorney is. You know? <laughs> that was a good touch. Um, like, I'm like, how did I get there? How do you get there? It's like a long hallway leading. So there's a lot of stuff, the issues, I think, in terms of editing. Um, and then the all right kid is in like, like production. The bathroom. They're like, you were in the bathroom. It's like, wait, like, what bathroom? How, yeah, how do you get there? Where was like, that? Where was I that bathroom? The bathroom was, atta- was it attached, attached to the office? Next to the office? To the office? Or, I don't you know. get to it from different location. And I think in like in these one these box kind of movies there is a really inherent sense, a need to have a sense of location. Yep. And it ultimately doesn't detract from the film. It's just this kind of like a little quarrel, I guess. It doesn't detract from it, but I think if it, it doesn't if more, elevate it, it doesn't yeah. elevate it beyond just being a really fucking good time. And this is, this is elevated beyond between beyond being a really fucking good time because it's so it's, it's such a it's such a good time. And, yeah, and it's, it's, most it's things, extremely well written. Like it's, well it's, written. It's, it's well one of the acted. better screenplays of the year. 
whoever is the casting director of this did a fucking phenomenal job. Like, yeah, we I, should do a salute to casting directors soon. I've I've always wanted to do best casting in my awards. I will put best casting in my awards. I mean, they fucking have a best casting. Like, I think I can't yeah. remember what award it is. I think Independent Spirit has Independent Spirit has like a that one side award. I think. For casting directors? Parents, no, it's not casting directors, but it's like best ensemble. It's like an ensemble. Oh, if the Altman Award? It, yeah, and, and you know, if you win it, like, you can't get nominated. Yeah, so that's the marriage story this year. I mean, I'll, we'll, create, we'll create that, but for casting, but yeah. it won't be acting. Um, yeah, no, because like, this is just, even like Johnson, I think kind of, like, his, just his demeanor, <laughs> just like that kind of like fake husband who's kind of like been clinging on to the success story. Yeah. Like, he's still good looking at his age and yeah. whatnot, but he's still kind of fake. Well, I just think um, he's, that it worked, like, every performance yeah. in this work. We've got an A, and we've got J- a- Jaden Martell looks so much like Ben fucking Shapiro in this, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, and not just like the way they, they, the makeup and hairstyle is. The kid yeah. looks like Ben Shapiro now. Sorry, Jaden Martell. I'm shitting on you a lot today. <laughs> and you're, you're pretty solid in, in It Chapter One. Um, hopefully, you're better than what Finn Wolfhard or whatever is in the turning. Um, movie I'm going to shit on. Oh, no. That it. movie is, <laughs> looks so bad. Um, but he that, just facially, like, if they do a Ben Shapiro movie in 20 years, like, He's gonna be Ben. Should make it. Um, yeah, it's when funny. Adam McKay makes that movie. I just, just <laughs> dying breath. I think there's an A. This is an A movie that I think could have been A plus if more yeah. care was taken on some of those other on some of the, te- the technical things. Yeah, it's not gonna be a classic. It's gonna be solid for the year, but it's not gonna be. No, but I'm saying like push it. Like push. Like you're saying like there's your hasn't been a Ryan Johnson movie that's kind of like like visually stood out to you. I think he's at that level where he could do that if he wants to. You know what I mean? He could. I know he's loyal to his fucking guys, but I think he could get a guy to shoot the shit out of this movie. And it's, it might just be a, a comfort thing, though. Sure, too. and that's fine. He made an A movie. He made a movie that's going to be on my top ten list. That's going to get nominated for an Oscar. That's going to win the fucking SAG for best ensemble. Mm, marriage Story. I don't. Over this, I mean, I haven't even seen Marriage Story yet. I'm pretty sure Marriage there's like Story is going to take that. An extra six people on here. That, like, the marriage story just doesn't have. Marriage story has five people. This movie has 11 that are all giving it hard. I don't know. It's just, I mean, I feel like like Black Panther won last year. Like, I feel like this oh, is, I guess that's this is in Black that Panther vein. Way. You know what I mean? Where, like, there's just, like, a lot of people, and they're all amazing, and they all are famous people. Oh, Joe Score 11 had a voice cameo on this? I didn't know that. Hmm. As a detective. That's fun. And then Walsh. That was good casting. That was, was so good casting. I when I saw him. He did not know how to use the equipment in his, yeah. his office. So. Speaking of looking at old Ben not knowing how to use fancy equipment, we also saw the, the elephant in the room in terms of its general length and uh, you know production cost. That is the Martin Scorsese cap-off, I guess, to his gangster films, I'm, I'm assuming. I don't know. Maybe I don't it's, see how he makes another one of these. I mean, it's got all those people. One of those guys is gonna die soon. Probably not Kaitel. I think Kaitel lives longest. I don't think so. He's gonna live to to 150. It's definitely not gonna be Frank Sheeran. <laughs> it is the Irishman. You know how strong I made you. I know things they don't know. I know. He said that. You sure he said that? I'm worried nobody threatens Hoffer. I got records, I got tapes, they're done. I had to put you into this thing. Sooner or later, everybody put here as a date when he's gonna go.
I know how you feel, Frank. Trust me, I know how you feel. We'll bring you back after get your car. We uh, we have a lot of thoughts. Maybe three and a half hours. Are we recording worth, right now? Worth, oh worth boy! It's okay. I, was, I was talking off. I was talking off. Off okay. audio it works. about how much I hated Wolf of Wall Street. Um, Robert De Niro plays Frank Sheernan, who is a a a truck driver in Philly. He lucks into meeting uh, Russ Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci. Uh, Russ is a is a boss in the Philadelphia mob. Uh, Frank ingratiates himself in with him and his his cousin, cousin or brother, cousin, lawyer, played yeah. by Ray Romano, Bill Bill Buffalino. I'm, I'm glad Ray Romano's he having was, a good year. So that's one of the things that I want to say what, about Paddleton, this. right? Paddleton. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was huh. Paddleton, that was earlier this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the I'm, movie that people loved and then forgot about. It's one of those things... That's so, what happens when Mark Duplass is in your movie. Yeah, it is what happens when Mark Duplass is involved well, in anything creepy. you do. That's happening to the the Morningstar like, show right now. Do people remember the league? I they watched don't. I watched an episode of something with Paul Shear in it. Um, I was happy to have. I'm glad. I, it stinks that Martin Scorsese is so old because Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano and um, uh, what's his face? Um, Stephen Graham. Steven, well, Steven Graham was just knocked out of the fucking park of this. But, oh, Sebastian Maniscalco, who plays Joey Gallo a little later in the movie. They're all, like, so Scorsese guys. They would just... I could even see, like, Plemons being kind of converted. Yeah, into, Jesse like, Plemons guy. would be a great Scorsese guy. And they're, he, they're, he's like not going to... Anna gonna... Paquin's, like, a good actress, not like Lorraine Bracco. Well, we can talk about... We're going to talk about that, too. Um, I mean, she's not doing much in this, but... Well, I think she's... Before. Doing, yeah. She is doing a lot. Well, we get it. Um, and then... The Irishman is essentially the story of Frank's life. He's in with the, the Philadelphia mob. He Russ paints is, houses. He paints houses, which means he shoots guys twice in the face. Um, Russ is friends with Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino. He sends Frank to Al, or to Jimmy. Russ sends Frank to Jimmy to do a do a couple of things for him out there in Chicago. Put some taxi cabs in the river. Blow some shit up. Kill some people. You know, as you do when you're a house painter and you do your own carpentry. You throw a lot of guns in rivers. But the backdrop of all of this stuff is kind of the, you know, the tumultuous time that our country was going through in the early 60s, mid-60s, late 60s, early 70s, um, with labor and with, you know, Cuba, which is, you know, heavily involved in labor. Um, Well, you know, I guess, according to Oliver Stone in this movie. Um, Which also, (laughs) there's a lot of JFK, there's a lot of fun JFK things in this movie. Namely, an uh, appearance of David Ferry. Uh, Joe Pesci's character, Joe, I noticed that. Yeah, a fairy named Ferry. Um, and, then, and then Frank has to make a lot of tough choices. Um, and he doesn't always want to make them. I'm just gripping it hard, Mario. It's the sound of me gripping it hard. <laughs> gripping and ripping. 
Um, and then he ends up alone in an old folks' home, not as close to death as he probably should be, or would like to be, but also not like to be. Um, this movie also stars, as I mentioned, um, and as you mentioned, Anna Paquin, Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale, Stephen Graham, Harvey Keitel has a couple of lines and also sits around. He kind of just a lot wearing glasses, glaring, yeah, Not glaring. Um, but as you said before, he's this, just there for that whisper scene, really. Yeah, which is which is a, the best scene of the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you got a screenplay by Steve Zalian, music by Robbie Robertson, which sometimes is good and sometimes really sucks. Um, editing, again, is done by Thelma Schoonmacher. So forgettable. That screenplay is so for. I mean, that score is so forgettable. Well, and the, and the, the theme is bad. The theme is ridiculous. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a faux Untouchables theme. I couldn't even tell you what, that, what the theme is for this movie. It's like that, I've watched this movie three times. Yeah, I was surprised when you said and that. And I could not tell you what this um, is. Cinematography is by Rodrigo Prichio, and I don't like him. Oh, the cinematography in this is, is flat, I mean, lifeless. he's done some things. I, I think, I don't know what he's doing either. Um, the, the you know the color saturation is really strange. I don't not sure what it means. Sometimes the it looks like he's filming like a stage play, and sometimes it, I'm not really sure what he's filming. Um, it's when I mean, he did he he it was fine in, in silence. Yeah, but it's I guess. But like, remember what Paul Thomas Anderson said about there will be blood is that if you put a the right camera literally anywhere in the West Texas desert, like you can make it look good. I feel like silence is kind of that way too. Like you stick a camera in like Japan and you're just kind of ready to go. Yeah. And that's the problem. Like, like looking at, I want to talk really quickly about the cinematography on this. Cause I don't think after this, it's worth talking about because it's a fail, a significant failure of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, He's done, just looking him up now, he's done two movies that really piss me off for how visually flat they are mm-hmm. when they should be so easy to shoot. And uh, Silence looked good, but these two movies, um, two of their most significant problems for me was the fact that they're in visually stimulating kind of stark areas. They're the quote-unquote sort of West Texas sort yeah, of yeah. plateaus and, and vistas that you can get. Um, Brokeback Mountain and, and Babel. Mm, like he did the cinematography yeah. for both of those movies. And both of those movies are just not good-looking films. No. I think Brokeback Mountain has a lot of problems beyond that. Well, like, Mountain, Lee's you can, my you Daniel just, Craig, yeah. and mostly because of what he like the, how badly he mishandled what could have been a really good film. I mean, Brokeback you could Mountain. justify some of the Brokeback Mountain stuff by saying like the washed-out like look is kind of emblematic of. It's not even washed out. You know, the, it just looks the feel of the movie and stuff like that. It just looks like a, a, an amateur photographer took like morning shots. Of the Wyoming mountains, I think it's supposed it's just, to be like a naturalism, but I I don't disagree with you. I don't I, I don't. It's not cinematography that I but super love. It's too big. Love. It's so big if it's going for natural. It's too big to be natural. It just feels. Oh, don't, do that. <laughs> don't do that either. I know we we really disagree on that. We do, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember that score. <laughs> okay, yeah. but no, I just and I think that's like uh, you know telling of a lot of the problems with this movie that I have is is. A lot of the com- blah blah blah. I always say this: component parts of the film are really forgettable, 
are really flat and it ends up feeling like I'm watching a television episode of something. Yeah. Um, you know, the cinematography is flat on this, that score fucking, like I said, do you even notice there's a score? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it, 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 it is. Well, then it has those weird slow motion scenes. And I was listening to a guy talk about this, like the wedding on the a wedding podcast. Scene yeah. With like Russell's daughter. Well, then when like the, um, when, um, the guy that was running the Italian American civil rights organization gets shot. Not Russell's daughter. Was it Frank's daughter? Frank's Bill's daughter. Bill's daughter. Bill's yeah. daughter. Yeah. Um, I've seen this movie three times. I don't know. Or yeah, the the. I don't know why they're in slow motion. What's the point? And some guy was saying on this podcast, was was like, "Oh, this is a Scorsese thing." I was like, "He has never done this ever." He's, he's. I don't know. And there's some. There's some like slow motion in. Well, there's tons of slow motion stuff like Raging Bull, but it's it's and like what Departed has. But Departed, it's like cool. It's for coolness. You know what I mean? It's done very sporadically. Some... And in Raging Bull, it's it's full of symbolism. You know yeah. what I mean? Like um, there's he's showing you, he's conveying something very specific when he shows shows you slow motion. And I don't know what it's doing here. And my problem is there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of slow motion into Casino. Yeah, and yeah, this yeah. the first hour and I'd say the first two hours of this movie feel like I was rewatching Casino in Philadelphia. But I would have rather have watched. Casino. I mean, this casino is more alive than this. Yeah, this is re- like, and it's more alive because it looks better. It's it's a it's a little. I mean, I know more it's, energetically it's paced. I, I don't want this people to think that we're saying this because we didn't talk about this beforehand. I don't want people to say think we're saying this because these are old guys and it's a movie about old guys and like old guys move slow or whatever. Blah 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 blah. It's not. It's just. It's weirdly. Uh, it's. It's weirdly Stag- dead on the screen. Stagnant. Yeah, stagnant, dead on the screen. It's just... But that doesn't mean I didn't appreciate, like, a lot of things here. I... Every time Joe Pesci showed up, like, I just kind of smiled. No, Joe Pesci is fucking, fucking phenomenal. Oh, he's so and good. And that's, that's what I was going to say, like, talking about reserve performances, like, of the year. Like, Pesci's, Pesci's there. Fantastic. Pesci's, Pesci's right in the running for me right now. And even, like, Al Pacino, who's doing a lot of Al Pacino things, but the, like... The cocksucker scene, when, you know, he yells at his guys and Frank, you know, kind of is like, oh, you can't yell at me. And, you know, he leaves and what have you. That's that's something I haven't seen Pacino, like, that level of emotion, that type of emotion is something I haven't seen Pacino do in a really long time. Yeah, like, there's the unhingedness of it. Like, he's Pacino unhinged, but this seemed, like, legitimately unhinged. Or even or even something going back to, like, his winning role for, like, Santa of a Woman, like, there's charisma and stuff when he kind of does that, like, kind of Donald Trump-esque to like talking about charging with a gun yeah um versus running with a knife you know like the, the, the body language and all that so over the top um but it really works and and it just like especially the scene where he's talking like he's talking on the phone to frank when he's near his uh on his lake house yeah, you know? yeah. And just like there's so much energy there and it's weird huh wait you know Pacino's the oldest guy of the bunch of all these dudes, and he's like got the most life to him. Yeah, I mean him and he has more, the most life. Joe Pesci is like acting the shit out of this role. I don't so know what the fuck De Niro's doing. In this I, movie. I mean, I think really we really I would like to. I, I'm gonna I want to skip him just real quick and like point to some other people first. Yeah, Stephen Graham is fucking kills it. Kills I'm, it. I'm not in love with Stephen Graham in this. You know why I'm in love with it? Because he's just like fuck this movie. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat every scene with my literally with his whole mouth, which is always showing, and he's just but he's like 
it's like a new when Stephen Graham comes think, in, well, when I Tony think, Pro comes in like fully to this movie, this movie is is dead on the fucking table. My, my and pro- he kind of injects some shit into it. Probably with this, probably with Stephen Graham in this is is that you're getting a lot of what, of Capone from like Boardwalk Empire, like we did it with Capone. I didn't Boardwalk see it Empire, and he's fucking like marvelous in uh-huh. that. And this feels like like an extension he, of that. He's not an extension, but it feels like he doesn't he doesn't give a shit as much. Hmm. Like he doesn't feel like he's he's doesn't care as much. I'm really glad he got this role instead of like Pesci because I guess Pesci really pushed to go for Tony Pro. Oh, and I'm glad we didn't get like a fucking fact, like you know, a copy of Goodfellas, yeah, or Casino with that. Uh, like I think, like just just you know, talking about Pesci is just he's great. Like there is so much anger, like the is what it is, and just like the the silent moments of anger. Um, and that like final scene, not that not necessarily the final scene, but the scene where he's trying to get the bread with the wine. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they say grape juice. I assume it's wine. Yeah. Um, like just the fucking frustration on his face. It's just there's so much emotion. Well, and then there's the great that, like I said, that um, the Harvey Keitel scene where Russ doesn't say anything. He's just sitting there looking at Frank, just like you fucked up. Like, yeah, and he's mad. Fucked up, and he's he's mad, but because also he's like put every, I'm taking you know, he's care put of it. everything on the line, right? For this, and that's the again, he's putting himself in, at possible risk for that's this. That's the best scene in the movie because there's an electricity which is absent from literally almost the whole movie. The reason it's absent though is, and there's there's sparks of there's sparks of greatness. I yeah, think, in this, but they don't come from Robert De Niro. No, no, they never. The only yeah, that part with De Niro, like like he feels really vulnerable like that's the one time he feels vulnerable and there's an entire 30 minutes of this film where De Niro's just meant to be vulnerable like when he goes to the bank to see Peggy yeah you know where he's he's looking at the the grave uh, the grave site and he's talking about like you know it's not really ever final um I think and it's going a- even to like the scene that people are fucking louding which is like when his lawyer's dead, and he's like, "Who did him?" And everyone's like, "Oh, you know, this is just a real symbol of like how sad it is to be old and whatnot." And I'm saying, you know what? Yeah, that last like, I think everything from Frank getting his his dinner, like his kind of like the appreciation dinner, yeah. to the end, I really love. I love all of I think that. It's pretty good. But I love all of that in spite of De Niro, because De Niro's not fucking doing anything. Well, I wonder if like part of like the time thing here is that Scorsese was really giving Robert De Niro a lot of space to kind of feel those things and he just kind of was never getting there and I think then maybe he made the choice like oh well we can watch him like turn things over in his mind and get there but it's just not effective he's just not present and I don't I don't know if it's because we start the movie with this fucking weird robot android version of Robert De Niro Who's apparently a kid, like with the war, the war uh, scene? No, with like when he's fixing his truck and when he's no. marching around with his. He's supposed to be young, so young people well, apparently have no necks, and but I young think, people also can't move I mean, their arms. From a CGI standpoint, I th- I think the, the the aging stuff worked. The problem with it that's kind of been you know you see it really heavily in Captain Marvel and you see it especially here like in that grocery scene where he's beating the shit out of that guy's hand oh my god you are watching a 75 year old man with like a what never looks younger than like a 48 year old face like even when he's supposed to be in his late 30s he still looks like he's like 48 yeah. I mean so I'm okay with that but you are it it strikes you as robotic because you cannot like redo the act it's like that, 
that scene bugs me too. It's like fucking Tab De Niro turned away from the camera and put a younger dude beating the shit out of that hand. But he can't because Scorsese, that's, well, that's the thing. So that's, that's the Scorsese thing, the medium shot of violence. You know what I mean? That's what he does. But he, you can't do that if you're actor It could be a medium to... shot, and it could just be he just he's turned from the camera. Yeah, but your actor who's supposed to be... All right, you know what? <laughs> you know what you do? You know, what, you know, what, you know what's great about, about CGI? You remember lanky, like, Chris Evans in Captain America, The yeah. First Soldier? They fucking just digitally mapped Chris Evans' face onto just a smaller actor. Fucking digitally mapped. You know what else you do here? Robert De Niro's young face onto a different actor's body. What you do here is you just cast Christian Bale. Or like somebody who can disappear into the... I'm not saying him specifically. But someone who can literally disappear into these roles. Like body and soul. And can like do the old thing like equally as well. My thing with this is... He can't do this. I see what Scorsese's doing here. Scorsese's like definitely doing... Trying to like do this love letter to to the everything to his career. whole career, career, yeah. And so the necessity of the de aging was important because it struck the magic that he had with like that, that that attempt and love he had for for special effects going you know with Hugo and whatnot, like that Hugo being that love letter to to Man on the Moon, um, you know, to to like the the ultimate in in modern technology and he needed to blend that with what he's known for yeah you know but it just Mario, looks this, weird it just doesn't but it doesn't work i mean the, do i don't we... think we're talking about why it doesn't work it doesn't work because for me it's two hours of an inferior casino and goodfellas and it's hard for me to say something's inferior to goodfellas because i don't enjoy that movie but i like watching this i really realize i don't enjoy it because i don't like Ray. I just don't think. I think Ray Liotta and Lorraine Bracco completely derail that. Um, but for two hours, you're just watching a movie with like some flashes of genius from but, Pesci and from Pacino. But this, the narr, you know, the the retelling of, of narrating what's done, the title cards of you know the people who have died, like I how they died. That. I thought that was cool. It all felt recycled but so and it I felt think... recycled by a man who's done this before and it's kind of like to me perfected that kind of genre already but I think the title cards like I think are... Departed was should have been his like bow to, to like the gangster genre because I think ga- maybe like, Departed, yeah. Departed works so well as like a modern telling and but like Departed... bringing all this to like the, the present day like bringing yeah. all of the things he built and created in the genre bring it to like Bringing it to the world that is now, that is that the gangster films now defined by Scorsese, Departed was that. This but feels here's like what here's what I'll say him though. going back in time and being like, what? Here's what I'll say about like the Departed. Hundred eighty million dollars. The Departed is not his movie. It is his movie, but it's also not his movie. Like this is Silence and Wolf of Wall Street in whatever way it is it was still kind of his movie. Silence is his movie. This is super his movie. You know what I mean? It's just it's just a Scorsese movie. Everything about it, like, is Scorsese to the max. You know what I mean? It has all of his guys. You don't have any interloppers like Jack Nicholson trying to take shit over. And, you know, Alec Baldwin and Mark Wahlberg, like, just chewing scenery. If he wants his scenery chewed, he'll get his scenery chewers to do it. Yeah, he gets, he gets an actor who could chew scenery, like Jesse Plemons, and it has him, Jesse Plemons, like, act incredibly well. So here's the thing. Here's what I'll say doesn't work about this movie is that Martin Scorsese is taking a lot of shit for this Anna Paquin thing. 
No, that's that's so unearned. It's so fucking stupid because the key of the Anna Paquin thing is that the first time we hear her voice is to ask her father why. You know what I mean? She says, what, seven, seven words why, in this film. Why? Why, why haven't, haven't you called, you called her? her? Yeah. Um, or why haven't you just called and it's, her? And it, it's, we just watched for an hour or more. Her looking. Her looking, but also Robert De Niro doing the same thing. For a lot of these scenes, he doesn't do anything. He's in the scene, but he's just kind of like, um, oh, 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 okay, okay, maybe, maybe. And just a lot of staring blankly into space and trying and to convey... And Sharon's supposed to be a passenger, like, in right, life. But, but it's like, it's not... De Niro's not doing that. He's not doing any... It doesn't seem like he's doing anything in these scenes. It seems like he's trying to do something, but it's none of it works. And, and so when she says the... When she finally says something it has a real force it has the force that he has never been able to muster and it works he's shot like 50 guys in the face and you never take him seriously as like a real person or a serious person or a threat to anybody even when he walks into like kill joey gallo like sitting in front of his family i was like i could just as easily see this not working because this guy this guy as portrayed by robert de niro could never do this couldn't do it because he can't lift his arm above his, like, you know, his chest area. So how is he going to shoot a guy a bunch of times in the face? It just doesn't make any sense. It's, I mean, and that's the thing. It's, I'm so conflicted about this movie because and I, part of me, I, I appreciate the effort and I appreciate what I think he's trying to do. And I'm giving him um, an allowance to do those things. But I was bored out of my fucking mind for like parts of it. And that's a, no. The problem isn't necessarily like like the physicality of like what the Nero is doing. It's like uh, an emotional energy, and he just doesn't have any emotional energy. He feels so tired. But that's why I think the physicality is important because he feels so tired, and then when he moves, yeah. it looks tired. But if he was like, if if he was like. Like, you look at, like I said, Pacino's older. Even, like, Pesci, who's, like, quietly reserved, you still get, like, this, just from the emotional, the emotive sense of him. Like, I, I get the feeling Pacino could still fucking be doing backflips if he wants to. Like, looking at him in this movie, it looks like he has, like, the physical energy. I don't know if you he'd land him, but I think he'd try him. You look at Pesci, and, like, you know Pesci's, like, at a spot where he's winding down. Yeah. But, like, there, he's, he's doing so much work behind the scenes and doing so much quiet work yep. that you would fully expect this old man who's still kind of, like, stumbling around. Not stumbling around, but still kind of, like, lumbering around yeah. to just explode if need be because you buy that emotional sense, even through the CGI, even through And you notice the it old less man, for him because you, he's supposed to be a little older. Yeah. You, you see it. You know, you sense it. And De Niro just feels tired because... All of it's just kind of like blankly looking. It's like he doesn't get like the emotional depth of it. And the only reason everything hinges on that call to Joe. Yep. You know, that call to Hoffa's wife. And, you know, he stumbles the fuck through that conversation in the sense of like he's literally stumbling, but he's not doing anything that makes you feel guilty. And it's all playing into like that, that one that finals lines of, you know, what kind of man makes a call like that, you know? And it's all playing into that, but the only reason that works is because of the way they've built Peggy. Because the only reason the emotion works there is because it's immediately preceded by, like, Anna Paquin, like, delivering that one line and asking why, you know, like, not necessarily asking just why didn't you call her, asking, like, why did you murder Hoffa? Why did you murder, like, 
every fucking person and why I'd be like, you literally destroyed my life. Yeah. And the only reason like the stumbling works is because it works from a screenplay perspective because Anna Paquin's delivering the performance, but he still fucking fails it. And, and that's what bugs me about this is like, there's moments of like a real genius there. Like, like the moments where, where Hoffa's being so resistant to, you know, to, to the calls yeah. of, um, Fat Sal yeah, and yeah, yeah, the Fat Sal and and and, and Tony, Tony and whatnot. Yeah. Um, like you get the energy and you get that str- that strikes of brilliance in this. Um, the the moment like like the one of for me the the great the best scene like the most interesting scene from an energy standpoint that really like like was a, like showed that the screenplay worked in a lot of ways um, was that like Sally Bugs Chucky scene. Mm. We're talking about the fish. Yeah, and Sally's yeah. in the front seat, and you know <clears throat> De Niro's not doesn't have to do anything. He's just sitting in the back seat. But you know, it's preceded by Sally Bug strangling that that competitor guy mm-hmm. in the back seat, and you get like that, that sense of um, who played Sally Bugs, uh, like like Louis uh, Louis cancel me cancel me, and you know like. Jesse Plemons is playing this like, what the fuck is this guy's problem? Like, I just got a fish for somebody. Yeah. You know, but Louis Casimel's playing this like, oh, I have been in that seat and I've been in this seat and I know it comes there. And you get the energy of that without it being really spoken. But every time you see De Niro, you don't get any of that energy. And it pisses me off. In the moments, you know, where like Pesci says it is what it is or is mad about Hoffa doing what he's doing, you get those interactions between Hoffa and Pesci like, like, has things are kind of like winding down with the Hoffa relationship or when fucking Pesci delivers that line of, you know, they killed, you know, they killed the president. What makes you think they couldn't kill the president yeah, of the yeah. union? Like there's so much fucking energy behind that, that everything De Niro is doing just doesn't work. And I think that's what makes me not like this movie in the end is De Niro fucking stinks in this. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure um, why that is. I, I'm sure we could analyze the shit out of it. Maybe he just, He's been he's been not great for so long. He's been doing impersonations of Robert of like old and school it, Robert it De Niro for like so an long. Because like you compare like <clears throat> this to Goodfellas, like fucking even, or like even the part like even know, even Casino, like when he's like, fucking destroying the phone in Goodfellas. Like yeah, that, that famous scene. Like there's emotion and actual like pathos behind that. And here, all the pathos is is in the screenplay and is is there, but like the performance of it just fucking. Drags it all to the ground. And that's why the length bothers me, because I don't know why we're watching this stuff. Because he's not... We're most of the time watching him, and we're not watching him do anything. Like, he yeah. just moves from one room to another, or one state to another, or and, from and one hit to like, another. Like I said, for, like, the first... Like, like even though that first hour and a half to two hours, like, were, were a real slog for me, um, and the second half of it works better, it would have worked... If you start seeing an emotional conflict in the near on that second half, and that's what that calls for. You expect Sheeran to be a passenger. He says in that scene where he, you know, he kills the two German soldiers. Like, I decided at that point, like, kind of whatever happens is going to happen. I'm yeah. just going to let life be what it is. And so if you get a guy doing what he's doing, like when he walks up to Whispers, goes, huh, and shoots him twice in the head. Yeah. And that's a good, like, like you watch that early on. You're like, this is a good scene because you're kind of getting the sense of he's going to be a passenger and kind of being a, a toy, whatever, for whatever. Yeah. For whoever's, like, Russ or whoever's telling him what mm-hmm. to do. Um and, and, you know, you get a growing sense of the relationship between him and Hoffa, and it's kind of building to, oh, this is going to be a real turning point where, like, all that energy from De Niro is going to fucking come to the front. Yep. And, like, had that happened, I would have been all in on this movie. But it turns, and I just see De Niro now being without CGI and just looking at a fucking wall and going, like, I want that grave. Yeah. Well, oh, Peggy. 
Peggy, I just want to talk. talk. And she's like, closed, walk away. It's like, and it's just like, I watched that going, you fucked up. Like, and, and that phone call scene, I'm like, at first, like I said, I watched this three times. The first time it really worked for me, watching it again, kind of separating my feelings with like how Paquin delivers that line and how the story crescendos to that. Just watching him stumble through it. Yeah. And it's just, it just is such a fucking a bummer tough. because everything hinges. Like, I'm going to say, I think that, like, thinking about this, one of the reasons this doesn't work is that him, everything hinges on him turning that performance into well, somebody who's now realized he could, he should have just died in the war. I would actually argue that I think it, the other reason it doesn't, I think Scorsese is making, he made a lot of weird choices. And I think the length, I don't know how the length got to be what it is, but I think one of the problems with the length, it's not just that it's long, it's that it's so long that there's so much time between certain things that happen that some of the cinematic patterns that like seem to be developing, like in terms of that would help to develop character, are so far apart that they're not really attached to each other anymore. So like the idea that he is a passenger, that he's not coming up with anything himself. So to that one union guy when he becomes president of the union, he delivers the same speech to him that Ray Romano delivered to Frank earlier, like in the very beginning of the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? About that stuff. But it's like it's like an hour and 45 minutes apart. For Richard Brody, it's like three hours apart. <laughs> he loved this movie. He watched it for, he said like, he needs to be watched five on a- Netflix five for hours, five hours. Yeah. Um, they're so far apart that they it just kind of starts to lose their meaning. You know what I mean? And like you said, like the Sally Bug thing, like, oh, you know, Sally Bug, you know, killed that guy, blah, blah, blah. That was like an hour and 20 minutes before, like, and, and that's we like, get yeah. Sally Bug in real time, like, wanting to sit in the back seat and De Niro yelling at him, like, you're sitting here, yeah, and I'm sit- sitting here. I and mean, then luckily that's kind of like salvaged a bit by Schoenmacher, kind of like showing it. Like like five like ten minutes later, like showing this the assassination. It's like oh he got nailed showing, for this thing. Yeah, and then yeah. showing like that Sally did it, and it's like like Schumacher's I think doing like like She's doing, doing her doing, best, doing her best. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I, I it just it it doesn't work from an emotional standpoint. Like I would justify the length, and I think Scorsese would have been okay with the, like it would have been okay with the length because there is those moments that are kind of trickled in there, kind of like as a reminder, like an episodic like previously on sort of thing. Um, which would have been fine because it, it's it's supposed to be like that, like it's naturally supposed to be long because it's supposed to show the expanse of age, but also how quickly yeah. it moves. But when everything hinges on one guy doing all, you know, being the Atlas to your film, and he just doesn't fucking do it, it it doesn't work. Mm. It was a bummer. It made me feel sad. Mm-hmm. And me too. Hopefully, hopefully this Friday brings it up. With marriage story, but it's no bomb back, so that's kind of a it's kind of a crapshoot too. I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm not really that concerned. Because all the things I've read about it are real things. This is a feeling. All the all the really good reviews are like I felt I got this certain feeling out of myself from when I was watching this. From movie. Irishman or? from the Irishman, yeah. It, it almost seems to have nothing to do with the movie. It just is how you feel about Scorsese, how you feel about yeah. the idea of these guys all being together, the idea of like a, um, you know, elegiac kind of tribute to himself and to like what he's built and, and, and what he might be leaving behind. And yeah, I guess I, guess and I don't give a shit don't about give a that shit. stuff. I don't, I don't care. It's three hours of my life. I watched like, this for De Niro, two days. De Niro and I watched it. I spent almost 10 hours on this movie, I guess. I mean, I definitely, like, my third watch through was just kind of like, like probably more than, an hour and a half. It's more scenes. than Richard Brody. Um, 
you know, like, like I haven't given a shit about Pacino or De Niro for ages. And I kind of like washed my hands of Pesci because I thought Good Shepherd was going to be, you know, the, <laughs> the, the pin on the, no, sorry. That Snickers commercial was going to be mm-hmm. the pin on the button there. Um, I think he did too. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I didn't get care. I didn't care that these guys were. I wasn't like oh, I don't care either. Come all back. I mean, I love Scorsese. I, mean, I got I, Scorsese. I love, Scorsese. Movies, I, I love the whole. I love the whole crew. I'm excited Not for Scorsese's like next DiCaprio movie. Um, he's like rushing in the production because which he, is oh god, I, I can't remember what it was. Um, I just when I read the description, um, I was like, oh, that it's it's about the murders of the Native American tribe. Oh, in that the was 1930s. a good book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was the name of that book? Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I yeah. just in my mind I was just saying Moonflowers. Moon Unfortunately, flowers. though, the Nero's going to be in that too. But if he's not—that's the thing. Yeah. If he's not asked to carry the movie on his back, if he's mm. asked to Silver Linings playbook it, you know what I mean? Where he can just kind of—he could just kind of—I mean, I didn't—I hated Silver Linings playbook. But he's fine. But I think it. he's pretty good in it yeah. because he's not asked to do anything spectacular. He's just asked to kind of be a curmudgeon. You know what I mean? And, you know, maybe have a little bit of character behind it, but nothing significant. Um, he needed to carry a three-and-a-half-hour movie by himself, and he just wasn't up for it. He just isn't up for it anymore. I hope he had, I hope he had a long nap afterwards. But, all right, let's go big picture here, though. If this does win Best Picture or Scorsese wins Best Director, like, are you going to be mad? I mean, because we don't care about the Oscars. My Oscars now are happening in three weeks. You know what I mean? Or four weeks. Whenever we do our best notes, no. that's my Oscars well, as far as well, I'm now concerned. That we're, now that we're media influencers, um, you know, yeah. big big content creators and yep. media influencers, I I would assume our awards are more prestigious. I think so. I think, I think we're I getting think, there. I'm going to be honest. We've probably seen more movies than a lot of the Oscar voters have yeah. seen. So I would be... I just don't care. I would not be... It would be a good night for me to get drunk and live tweet stuff. Yeah. Like I did with the report yeah. until I stopped watching the report. No, oh, the report was a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> the report our, was a tough our, one. Our, our, my 140 character review of that movie is it's bad. My 140 and character Sarah review Goldberg is will, that it's will a, eventually become something, I it's think. It's a weird... She'll eventually become something. That's the only a, thing I took from that. It's a weird hybrid documentary where everybody sucks except for Adam Driver. Everybody... Or and Ben Udall. I thought... I thought Sarah Goldberg. No, I, don't, I just mean from a character standpoint. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Every other person is a terrible person. And I've learned that Scott Z. Burns loves orange, except when he doesn't and wants some green. Yeah. There's so much fucking orange in that movie. It's weird. For no reason. And then there's green. I was like, oh. Yeah, I don't know. It sucks. It was a, that, that was also a slog. It's a slog. It's and a, that was half is, as long. Yeah. Irishman. If, if those were the only two movies... In contention, I would I would hope that Irishman swept. I would even, I mean I mean I mean maybe they just don't award Best Actor that year, but <laughs> well, John Hamm's certainly not going to get anything. I'm not sure what his problem is. Um, I didn't know the Obama White House employed like just roundly only supported douchebags yeah. in the in the Oval Office, but that's what we got, I guess. Um, all right, we will be right back with our number thirty-eight. An hour and 20 minutes and do it. Here's the list. <laughs> Welcome back. That was a long one. Um, 
Yeah, that's, that was an episode worth of. It was. It was an episode worth. There's going to be a lot of fans of our podcast that are mad that this <laughs> this is going to breach the 190 or the 90 minute mark, which you know, I, I mean, because our nice round, it's a good number. I don't know we can we can speed through these two movies in. We could if minutes. we wanted to. Um, my number thirty-eight. We're not going to talk about it at length because it is much higher on Mario's list. Um, for people keeping much scores, um, not number one. So we'll no, not number one. But we're gonna. So we won't. You know, we're not going to go heavy into analyzing this movie right now. Um, we'll just talk about it. You know, from my point of view, and then you know, throw it to Mario for some closing comments, and then we'll move on to Mario thirty-eight. Yeah, my only my only comments in this are going to be direct because this movie is considerably higher on my list will be only directly related to, to what i'm saying okay um that movie is uh jonathan demi's silence of the limbs you spook easily starling not yet sir he's past the others the last cell i'll be watching you'll do fine the killer is on the loose keeps them alive for three days then he shoots them skins them and dumps them a rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. He's a monster, Dr. Chilton. <laughs> um, yeah, so for those who don't know, Jodie Foster is Clary Starling, and she is helping to find the serial killer Buffalo Bill, and in an effort to do that, um, Scott Glenn asked her to go see the notorious cannibalistic... B.I.G. Yeah, the notorious B.I.G. That would be an interesting movie. He could have done this. <laughs> When she turns that corner, she's been, what's up? And she would have been like, like there's hmm. the little Kim. <laughs> not, not Migs. Little, little Kim. Um, and Puffy's down the hall. <laughs> Puffy throws his cum on her. Um, oh <laughs> it works, it works. <laughs> um, no, that's not his name anymore. Um, they develop a, a, a quid pro quo style relationship. Um, and then eventually, spoiler alert, she catches him. I mean, ultimately... Buffalo Bill. Buff- she catches Buffalo Bill. Um, Hannibal Lecter escapes. Ultimately, that's what we're talking about here, Mario. We're talking about 30 seconds of, of exposition explaining, like, what the hell is happening in this movie. This movie has entered, you know, it's a, it's a touchstone movie. No, it's, it's, the last, the it's the last film to win the, uh, the Big Five. To sweep. Yeah. yeah. Um, best picture, actor, actress, screenplay, and... Um, director. Director. Category front on one of them, but whatever. Which one is that? I still say actor is a bit goofy. Yeah, but I still put it's, has the lead in this. But I actually, but he, I don't think it's he is undeniable in this. Anthony oh, Hopkins is um, creating something new, which is um, why. But Brett Ratner would then perfect. <laughs> some would argue. <laughs> some would argue that Michael Mann perfected it before he perfected it. Um, I am not one of those people. Manhunters. I think Manhunter stinks. Oh, oh. But that's because I hate Michael Mann. And I got a DeVito, honey. Yeah, that was also used to uh, the same effect in an episode of Home Improvement. So, you know, <laughs> and I got a DeVito is not really interesting. <laughs> interesting for me. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. We can have, we we should have that debate one time when we do your Silence of the Lambs. We should do the the Michael Mann the Manhunter thing because I I've never understood what you, anyone sees of that. In I that movie. so should have had Collateral somewhere on this list. Just to I thought you, you did have Collateral. I was dreading the day yeah, I have I to watch fucking Collateral. Why? I don't know. Oh, that movie stinks. Oh, I hate Michael Mann. I hate him. Even he talking about De Niro and Pacino together. You do what you're gonna do. I'll do Val Kilmer's great Val Kilmer is great Val Kilmer in the mid 90s was great in everything Batman Forever he was actually pretty good in Batman Forever I love Batman Forever so we went to the we went (laughs) sidetrack for the people that hate the 90 minute episode love the 90 minute episode you're real fucked me and my family went to a Chinese food restaurant the other day they were playing Batman and Robin on the TV and my son has never seen any of these Batman movies yet and he was just like and I was like oh what the hell is he looking at and it's just the beginning when he's fighting Mr. Freeze and Robin's doing like, we wish I had a car. Chicks dig the car. Well, you realize Batman, Robin, and Crush almost had to be like on, and that one crazy music video from Aerosmith were almost, almost really should theoretically be on my list of pivotal films. Oh, really? I mean, Uma Thurman's Poison Ivy, uh, Alicia Silverstone and Crush. And Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler in Crazy. See, I've always... Defined... I've Everything always, for me has a heterosexual. I've always really liked Carrie Elwes better in Crush. So oh, me too. That's I always go to Crush for my Carrie Elwes fix. I saw Crush because of Carrie Elwes. I was a big Robin Hood man tights guy. Mm. We should talk about mm. Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> we should talk about Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> uh, so in 1991, two, 1992, no, 1991, I went to see a movie. In the, in the winter of 1991, I went to see a movie called Home Alone, which played forever, back when movies played for eternity. That movie is number one for ages. Forever. And there was a movie poster, Mario, in the lobby of the theater where I went to see Home Alone. And it was a woman's face with, with some kind of butterfly thing across her mouth. And I was like, what the hell is that movie? I was 10 years old. Or I was about to be 10. Um, no, it was nine. Um, I remember watching those Oscars. I remember because I watched, I liked award shows. We watched the Grammys like every year. Um, I remember watching those Oscars and Silence of the Lambs won all the stuff. And I was like, one day I'm going to see Silence of the Lambs. And you know, you didn't have to worry about forgetting about it. You know what I mean? Because it had entered the culture so significantly at that point that like no one would ever let you forget about it. And you know, you'd see clips here and there. You saw commercials on TV. And, you know, there's just, there's nothing. And I, I, I will go to bat for this comment. There's nothing like a young Jodie Foster performance. She is one of the most, like, electrifying actresses when she wants to be. It's, there's just an energy that comes off of her that doesn't exist anywhere else in movies at that time. Um, you know... You saw the Hannibal Lecter stuff. You saw the parodies of the Hannibal Lecter things, the fava beans and and all this other stuff. Um, you knew it, even if you didn't know it. And I feel like you you can kind of... I feel that way, too, about stuff now, like The Mandalorian. I have not seen six seconds of The Mandalorian. Not one second. I don't know why I said six. I haven't seen one second. I haven't even... I haven't even taken you up in your generous offer to upload, you know, Disney Plus onto my... TV because I just haven't had a chance to do it yet. Um, but I feel like I know exactly what's going on on The Mandalorian. 
You know what I mean? Because everyone just fucking talks about it. Everyone was talking about Silence of the Lambs. Everyone. Forever. Mandalorian's pretty great. Whatever. I don't really even care. And I love Star Wars. And I just don't give a shit. Um, But I'm against it. I just don't have time to watch it. I just like Pedro Pascal. Um, And then I saw it. I don't even... How old were you? When I saw it, I don't know. A young teenager. Maybe 12, 13... You know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah, I saw this, I think, when I was like 94-ish. So I was like eight, nine. Okay. Well, that makes sense. From your film autobiography, that makes perfect (laughs) sense. I wasn't scared. And I wasn't, like, freaked out. And I wasn't grossed out. What I think, what I recognized the first time I saw Silence of the Lambs, and it maintains itself to this day, it was my first interaction with um, perfection. With the idea that this is a perfect movie. I don't know if it's a perfect movie. Um, someone that... I'm sure someone will tell me that it isn't. I'm sure those Manhunter motherfuckers will tell me that like that's the better movie than this. Like, objectively. I don't think any... I'm a Manhunter motherfucker. And I would say... Not say that. We, we say it's... Manhunter's significantly better than Red Dragon. Well, Yeah. That's not no, saying anything. Manhunter people, I think, compare it to Red Dragon because there's idiots who say Red Dragon's better. And like from a book standpoint of being faithful to the Thomas Harris book, Red Dragon, sure, whatever. I feel like there's people that think that Tom Noonan was a better Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins. Well, but Tom Noonan wasn't a Hannibal Lecter. Brian Cox was. Oh, right, right. Tom Noonan was the other guy. No, but Tom Noonan wasn't even better than do you Ra- see? Ra- Ray Fiennes. Do he, you wasn't, see? he wasn't even a better Francis Tolleride. Um, right, it was Brian Cox. And Brian By the Cox way, guys, spoilers, I'm also a big nerd over this series. <laughs> um, Expect a Hannibal television talk when I talk about Signs of the Lambs. But it was... Unlike anything I'd seen before. Yeah, that is really good. We talked about it a little off-air with the Jonathan Demme, with like the, the face-forward like POV shots, like the reverse POV shots almost, you know what I mean? Where it's just like right on there. Um, that's not a thing that people do. Jonathan Demi did it. You know what I mean? He parodied himself in the Manchurian Candidate later, which I thought was weird. I think it works. I think it's... I, he, does, he does it in Philadelphia too as well, right? He does it in Philadelphia, I think, to better effect than in the Manchurian Candidate. I think it's because of the, 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 the content of the... Or the context of the Manchurian Candidate. Like, that kind of weird paranoia thing, it's just too much. It's, like, too on the nose a shot for that type of film. Actually, I, 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 you know why it doesn't work in Manchurian Candidate? Absolutely, it doesn't work. Um, it, it typically works, but, oh, man, is it Kimberly Ellis? When they she does the point of view shot, she just seems so happy to be <laughs> looking at crazy Denzel. Yeah. And and she's she's fun in that movie. I like Manchurian Candidate 20, 2004, but... um. We'll talk about the other Manchurian Candidate also a lot later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it kind of at times it seems like people are really excited it to be in much. a Jonathan Demme yeah. film. It seems it seems like way too much for that type of. It movie. It feels where... like they know they're in a Jonathan Demme point of view shot, and well, they're so, so excited. So here's the thing: so in Silence of the Lambs and in Philadelphia, it seems like connection. You know what I mean? It, that's what it seems to be really representing is a kind of um, a kind of meeting of the minds almost. You know what I mean? So you don't get any. I'm, I'm, you don't get any head-on Chilton shots, I'm pretty sure. Not at least not with Chilton and Clarice. Because Chilton is never going to let himself in enough to kind of have that thing. He's never going to be frank enough with a person um, 
it's one of the reasons why when Scott Glenn, the Scott Glenn Clarice relationship really works because they do have those moments together where they're looking like looking directly at each other, where they're really connecting, where he's not just um, making an example of her or, you know, um, he's not looking down at her or he's not like undressing her with his eyes. Like there's, there's like an actual human connection there. And I think it works extraordinarily well with, um, Casey Lemons and Jodie Foster, like when they're kind of working things out. Yeah, it feels like there's a real sisterhood. Well, so that's the thing. So that's where the there's there's an energy in that shot. You know what I mean? Which is too much in the Manchurian Candidate. That's too and that's too much energy. Like the energy is going crazy here. It feels like you're looking at an actor be excited, which maybe it should be. Maybe it should be, but it just feels weird. Um, but it was my first brush with. A movie that's clicking on all cylinders, that is new, that is expressing something different from every other movie I had seen up to that point, looks like and feels like. And it was fucking unbelievable. And I still, like to this day, um, even though you've seen it like a hundred times, when when she goes to visit Lecter that first time, you just get chills up your spine. You know what I mean? It's just a rush. Everything about it is a fucking rush. Um, and I, I maybe have seen this. You can add this movie to like some of the movies I've talked about before that I just kind of go to all the time, like Seven. Like this movie and Seven are those types of movies when I can literally just, like if I don't have anything to watch, I'll be like, you know what? I'll just watch Silence of the Lambs again. Because I know I'm gonna get it. I know I'm gonna get that like that fucking juice, and I'm gonna. It's not gonna be a. It's not gonna be a passive experience like watching The Irishman. You know what I mean? Like even though I've seen this movie a million times, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be involved, and I'm gonna be absorbed. And I think one of the really interesting things about this movie is that, um, the Lecter character. Everyone wants to say that the reason it works so well is because we like him. You know what I mean? Like even in the Ebert book, and like me and Roger Ebert are good friends. Um. You you have your Ouija board out right now. I'm, I'm gonna give him some. I'm gonna give him a piece when we're. He's a fan of key lime yogurt. Interesting. <laughs> he just really likes it. Um, one key to the film's appeal, he says, and this is his great movies. Um, the book with the broken spine. I wouldn't say that it's broken. <laughs> it's hanging on by a thread. You can tell which movies I've read a lot about. The Raging Bull one opens right up. The, the Silence of the Lambs one opens right up. What else? Um, good. good oh, uh, La Aventura. Yeah, that one. Detour. La Aventura, really? I read a lot about I went through a big Italian phase there. Um, one key to the film's appeal is that audiences yeah, like, it's not on your list, like but. Hannibal Lecter. That's partly because he likes Starling and we sense he would not hurt her. It's also because he is helping her search for Buffalo Bill and save the imprisoned girl. But it may also be because Hopkins, in a still, sly way, brings such wit and style to the character. He may be a cannibal, but as a dinner party guest, he would give value for money if he didn't eat you. He does not bore. He likes to amuse. He has his standards. And he is the smartest person in the movie. That is fucking stupid. The reason Lecter works in this movie is because you are fucking terrified of him. Because you think, even though there's a glass and stone and there's just the drawer and he's all he can do is smell her through the holes in his window, that he is... His presence permeates all surfaces. 
all he, membranes. He is he is everywhere and he is nowhere and he is of he is just like a fucking they portray him in this movie like a god. But not like in a stupid way, in like an like an angry god way. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna can I mention just this yes. really quick? Yeah, uh, yeah. Just because I absolutely agree with you. I um, so I watched this movie really closely, like about a year or two before, uh, before I watched another movie. And I hold these two movies really close together in terms of their emotional impact on me. Okay. And you're going to laugh, but it's Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Mm. Because Hannibal Lecter and like the, the Anthony Hopkins performance and Gary Oldman's performance strikes me as strikingly similar in terms mm. of like their, their pre- like the force in which they have. Like Hopkins is doing a lot more work. But to me, I agree there, and the, like the reason it feels so scary is he still feels like he's feeding, but yeah. now he's feeding upon becoming a part of their brain and, and being inside of their head and ruining them. Like he doesn't give a sh- like whatever Harris would later do with Hannibal, and I just did a jacking off motion until <laughs> semen erupted from my brain penis. Um, you know, like. Lecter's a fucking, like, he's a parasite, you know? He's a parasite in the sense of, of, of he still preys upon what he can, upon the inferior. Yeah. Um, and he, he, and he exists as, like, this, this predator still to even Clarice and everybody because he's still trying to consume her. Right. Just in a, a different, different way. way. Yeah. And that's what makes him terrifying. And that's in that... That te- ruins her too. He's, the, he's ruining her throughout it. The level, and that's and that's I think that points to, and, and we'll get off of this because we're gonna we're gonna analyze the shit out of this movie later. Um, that is something that I hadn't seen before, and I hadn't experienced before, and it's done so expertly, and it's done with cinema techniques. It's not done with exposition. It's not done with um, just, like, one thing. You know what I mean? It's not done with, like, cliches or it's not done with some kind of, like, hysterical, you know, performance from Hopkins or, or, or something like that. It is done with metaphors and it's done with clues and it's done with camera movements and it's done with perfectly utilized segments of score. You know what I mean? It's done with like juxtaposing certain aspects of of like the of like the characters and what they're going through and like what they're doing and they keep putting Clarice you know the one of the genius things about this movie that I think really goes untalked about is that Clarice keeps falling back into her life you know what I mean when the movie opens she's running and every, she goes and meets Lecter and then she just is when you see her again she's doing training stuff and then she goes and meets Lecter again. And then when she goes, when we see her again, she's doing more training things. You know what I mean? She's wearing sweatpants and like has books in her hands because she's taking classes because she's a trainee. And she keeps dragging her out of her life. And that's not something where she's saying to Scott Glenn, like, you're dragging me out of my life. Or she's saying to Hannibal Lecter, like, you are dragging me out of my life. But you keep seeing these filmic ruptures in her existence on film. Um... And it's so thrilling, and it's mesmerizing, and it's totally amazing. And as a kid, I recognized it. You know what I mean? I feel like, and it's a movie we're going to talk about later, and we already talked about it a little bit with you. There's like something, something similar to the Shawshank Redemption. You know what I mean? These 
early artistic examples of emotion. And that could be from a record, that could be from a movie, that could be from a book, and we're going to talk about one of those things um, in like six or seven episodes for me. Um, so that'll be deep into 2020. Um, your first glimpse of an artistic depiction of what something feels like, and then you connecting to that feeling. So it's not just being scared. You know what I mean? It's not like just like a jump scare, like, ha! Like, you know, scared. It's that, like the deep... Ah! <laughs> it's the pervasive feeling of dread, bad reaction time of dread that comes over you you know what i mean and like what does that feel like and where does that come from and what can you do with that feeling um like silence of the lambs kind of introduced me to a lot of those things but i also love that i, I have think- the memory of of it like as a kid like seeing the poster like it's just kind of one of those things that like seems like it's always been like just like behind me you know it's like always right there these are like stupid things to say but it's like it's true. It's just it's. I think of Home Alone and Silence of the Lambs as like the same movie. You know what I mean? When I go, when I watch Home Alone, I think of Silence of the Lambs, and I watch Home Alone a lot because my kids love watching people get hurt. So they're gonna Joe be, Pesci. You gonna you gonna take them to see Organ Donor? The the Chris Rock no. Saw film. But we will see. I can't wait to show them Jackass the movie. No, no, I. I what were you gonna say? Um, I was gonna I was gonna mention something, but yeah. I'm saving it now. Why? For oh oh, uh, after the break. For, <gasps> but we don't have to go to the break right now. But I'm saving for after the. No, break. No, we could go to the break. This is a good time. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll be right back for Mario's big reveal right after this. Long, long time ago, on this podcast. I talk about film's ability to both build and destroy. Mm. Its ability to to build up a person into a character, into ideas, and its ability to wrench that all away. I think I was talking about the fountain, and it's like its ability to kind of tangle that web with death. Mm -hmm. My number 38 did that for me with how I watch film and the films I watch and the reasons why I watch them. Strangely enough, this film is a, I don't want to say cancer because that feels like it's, it's being mean to the word of it's, it's shouldn't use the word cancer for that, but it really feels like a parasite. Mm. And this film talks about being a cancer in something, but it, I saw this when I was 15 long before my fascination with this director would kind of take hold in college and long before my fascination with the genres by which I kind of associate this film with Mm -hmm. maybe contentiously um, really took root and and the things I would read and the things I would do throughout college and what would kind of not necessarily shape me as a person Mm -hmm. I want to put that out there (laughs) ladies mention this uh, but would shape me as a um, consumer of art. This film was a culmination of horror, 
for me um, in the sense of I, I had experienced the Halloweens and the Nightmare on Elm Streets and everything, but they had done that in such kind of like a baseline way. Mm-hmm. But this had been something else. This had been a production that existed as a bigger thing. It had bigger ideas behind it. Not necessarily metaphorical ideas, but its construction was something new. Mm-hmm. It's, and it maybe even wasn't necessarily new. But it was my introduction to this yeah. newness. It was my introduction to to what it was doing. And it took a hold of me, and it grasped on tight, and it shaped what I now desperately want in film and what I desperately pursue every time I read something, a new book, what I, what I love, what I will always love. This is the reason why I, I grasped on to Brett Easton Ellis' literature Um for its its rawness with violence and its its adoration of body horror, why I grasped onto Cormac McCarthy's sort of nihilistic, rupturing sense of noir, um, why I grasped onto the films like Double Indemnity I spoke on earlier in this list, or films I'll talk about later on in this list. This is the movie that took a hold. Something in this film crawled into my brain. Like Hannibal Lecter, bit into a synapse, spewed out some neurochemicals, and made Mario Ponzio who he is. That film is Videodrome. Why would anybody watch a scum show like Videodrome? Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Ren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Max Wren is a Toronto UHF television station president who is seeking the grungiest, most subversive of materials. He has a satellite pointed to the sky, scanning the waves for the nastiest, sexiest, rawest images television he finds some interesting stuff he finds some samurai dreams and ladies doing doing samurai dreams I do stuff. like that dildo wearing a kimono yeah that's yeah. very good he finds some you know he gets presented some material of like classical nudity but you know it's not too modern no but one day Harlan who works deep in the basement of Civic TV the television station Max is the president of, finds a broadcast from Malaysia of this thing called Videodrome. It is 50-some seconds, um, 57 seconds, I believe, of a woman against a red clay wall being tortured in a very psychosexual manner um, before it's re-scrambled and lost. 
as they pursue it, Max discovers that it's actually coming from not Malaysia, but Pittsburgh. Pit- oh, the hotbed I mean, of snuff pornography. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger's from there. That's... Oh, Mario. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> Should we drink at that? <laughs> no, why? <laughs> Fuck Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, yeah. Everybody, anyone that's listening to this in Pittsburgh is like, yep, I get it now. I totally get it. Uh, considering Ben Roethlisberger committed his not rape in Tahoe, where I'm near from, you know. We're all subjects there. Um, he discovers that this videodrome isn't faked material, as he thought, but is actually real images of snuff film. And as he becomes more engaged with it, and develops a relationship with this Nikki Brand, who also shares his similar kind of interest with sadomasochism. But a little further. Yeah, a little, little, little more real. Yeah. A little less detached. He suddenly starts hallucinating. Starts seeing Videodrome all around him. It becomes parts of his everyday life. And he finds out through videotapes of Brian Oblivion, the professor of what is what is necessarily he's a professor of like i think video video, something like like i just every time i watch this i'm like he's a professor of subversive film yeah and i just write it off as that um he discovers that videodrome actually creates a tumor because it's not necessarily the material but it is the video beneath the material that opens up the cortex of the brain and of the spine to you know to Get in there and latch on to you. Mm-hmm. And Max is slowly overtaken and brainwashed into committing acts of violence because they are promoting Videodrome as this next wave in human evolution. This, yeah. this next moment of, of being greater than person, as you say, as you know, um, Bianca says. And Brian had no more use for the flesh. Long live the, the new flesh. flesh. Uh, when I saw this as a 15-year-old, whose only prior exposure to David Cronenberg at the time had been The Fly, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, like long ago, and I had just actually forgotten that I had watched it and then like didn't like I just known that I'd seen The Fly when I was like 12 on like a horror thing. And I kind of forgot about the fly again into college. Um, when I watched this, you know, for the first time, it, it kind of struck me. And not necessarily for its violence. Like, I, you know, I had become comfortable with, with pretty extreme violence. But I, it, it was... It had a philosophy behind it. It wasn't the philosophy. It was the way in which the story unraveled. That was... A curiosity to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the hapless kind of disgruntled, drunken character waking up in the morning with beers all around and making a shitty-looking cup of coffee, looking at pictures of titties while eating pizza crust. No, it's the stills from his from the next from the acquisition of Samurai Dreams. <laughs> um, you know, and then being seduced by this voluptuous, like Deborah Har- Debbie Harry's really attractive in this. Yeah. Like, 
you know, femme fatale sort of thing. And, and just unraveling this mystery was just really intriguing to me. And, 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 and you know, this, this visceral imagery of, you know, I had seen kind of like the, you know, Freddy Krueger coming through the wall in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, but all of this ramped up to a thousand where, you know, through Rick Baker's special effects, everything was living and breathing. Like this had this living world and the psychosomatic nature to it yep. of, of being this abstract, weird, dark, grim creation that was grounded initially, but as you dwell deeper into the mystery, you everything unraveled into psychosis. For me, this was the start of my fixation with film noir. Because hmm. this is so quintessentially to me a film noir film, first and foremost. Um, Cronenberg's dad, uh, I think his, um, his father, well, I think it was is Max Cronenberg, I can't remember his last name, um, was kind of like a writer and mm-hmm. editor of... of um, noir. Noir. And, you know, so many of the elements here kind of speak to noir. Mm-hmm. You have you know that femme fatale and you also have kind of like the bland love interest and his assistant that makes the videotapes for him every day Mm -hmm. you have like the kind of criminal genius um in uh barry convicts you know who's kind of like the mastermind of all this who's kind of like shows up right there in the third act to kind of piece everything together you have the kind of big sleep style you know hidden genius of Brian Oblivion. You have the DOA, you know, race against time in, you know, Max's kind of growing tumor and and, uh, possibility of death. And this movie struck me in the way that all of the things that unveiled the way they did. Like starting out with this really kind of horrendous person playing Max Wren. Got you, James Woods. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- um, I still think he thinks he's playing Max Red, but this but this, this horrendous person, you know, who who's who's seeking out these these really morbid, grotesque sort of things, um, kind of being thrown headlong into a world he doesn't understand, surrounded by people who ramp up his own desires to eleven, you know, and being clashed against with with you know the things that could actually ground him and, and this untangling web of mystery set upon this backbone of visceral, like sexual violence and, and, and consensual sexual violence and unconsensual sexual violence. And against this backbone of, of this really weird, you know, um, subtext, uh, not proto-human, but, but transhuman, completely went the wrong direction there. I said proto-human when I meant transhuman. Crazy how two 11.4 beers make your brain work. Um, They're putting me to sleep. <laughs> this, this transhuman ideology of, of becoming more than human and, and creating this kind of plot of, of murder and, and reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Manchurian Candidate, you know, I don't think I have the appreciation for films like Manchurian Candidate that I don't without this really simple backbone because this is a simple movie at its core. 
you know, it's everything is presented in a way that was, at least for me, extremely palpable. Mm-hmm. It's a 1980s film. I grew up consuming consistently 1980s movies. My mom was a purveyor and a collector of 80s. Um, you know, the only music I would really listen to was like kind of those 80s pop and rock gems. Mm. And so I lived and breathed this time of of, of the world. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and the actors and every, uh, the James, familiar with James Woods and, you know, familiar with Debbie Harry and, and everything and just familiar with, with the tone and consistency of a 1980s film and having seen Signs of the Lambs, you know, the spark, you know, before those, those, those moments of score that kind of permeate, you know, Howard Shore doing the score for both this and Signs of the Lambs yeah. permeate it in such a way that it shows emotion and tells you how to feel in certain moments, but still being kind of pulled back and like synth wavy esque in this. Yep. Um, well, there's that, moments that, where there's no score. No, absolutely. Where I, I would have assumed there was score, and then when I realized that there wasn't a score, I was kind of unnerved yeah. by it. But then when there is score, it kind of also like makes you think. And it, and it carries those tones of, of something like like a person you, you hate, like you said, Michael Mann. Um, kind of like a softer synth-wavy-ness to that. Um, but it's a little more biting and direct. And so it's it was digestible to me. But the way in which the story unfolded was digestible in the way where I was like, this is what I want to see in all like, this is what I always want to see. Like anytime I'm going to see this movie told this way, um, not necessarily in terms of subtext of violence, but anytime I see a hardened man or woman presented in an element outside of their control with outside forces bigger than them and being unable to handle it and ultimately ending in tragedy, I am 100% on board for this. This is the movie that set that tone. Did it bother you that the story made no sense? No. No, it it made sense to me, in a sense. Uh In a a sense, it made sense. (laughs) Um, To some degree, it, it... it was and this that's other not, a, not as a criticism, just no. as like a question. This otherworldliness to me kind of enhanced the sense that you are in, and and this is the hard boiled noir kind of kind of trope I, I love is is you are, you know, even if you're not a hard drinker or you know a, a womanizer type like these noir protagonists are, you feel like you're in the boots of a Max Ren or. Mm-hmm you know, a Bogart or whatnot. Um, And so when things don't make sense, you feel as though you're standing beside the protagonist in that it doesn't make sense to them either. And Uh so it kind of just enhances the journey. Right. Well, it's weird because I actually did not think you were going to come at it from that perspective, especially with everything else that's going on in this movie. And what I know about you and like what you like about certain movies and what have you, I was... I was not thinking the the film noir was where like well, no, no, this like, movie kind of you know digs where this movie kind of wraps around your fingers and, and digs, digs into your nails wrists into and, my yeah, yeah, yeah. screws screws in my wrist yeah no and and the body horror aspects of it played a big role to, key, to, yeah, to, yeah. to getting me in the door uh-huh. you know like Rick Baker's work is phenomenal in here when that transformed gun has completely become that handgun like you're so enamored by how slimy and and. Well, just you know, curious. Typical looks. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's curious looking or the stomach vagina um or or the breathing television and the breathing beta max player um but that's that stuff that just gets me into the door it's Mm -hmm. it's it's the way in which the story evolves has has a really sort of very typical noir for me but done in a way that most people wouldn't call this a noir (laughs) Well, it's funny because... It, they would just call it like a body horror film? Yeah. But it is, it well, is, it, if you look at it, it's following every, almost every single aspect of a noir film. Well, we're going to... I mean, we can... I don't know if you agree with that. We can dig into that, like, right now, because I... My perspective on it is not so much the body horror, but, like, the context in which the body horror takes place. So, for me, the first time I saw this was in... I was a teenager. You know, it, it was one of those things where, like, you just watch... Like, the Cronenberg movies are kind of, like... Those weird, your like, gateway to adulthood kind of movies that it's like, like that and Takeshi Miyake. Yeah, where you're just kind of like, oh, like, we have this movie and like, you know, there's Debbie Harry's in it and she like burns her tit with like a cigarette. And it's like what? Like she did Debbie Harry? Is she naked? Blah blah blah. And she's not. And she pierces her ears and she, <laughs> you know, while they're having sex. Well, it's interesting. She's not like absolutely naked in this film. No, but there's what's. The showing when he's moving his hand up her leg, and you see kind of like um, the the stretch like the slight stretch marks on her leg mm-hmm. felt so much more sensual and and well the uh, cigarette and, and rot, like like the cig- um what's it what's it un, not unfathomable but but erotic and, and like unspoken yeah we're me. going like, to the like same forbidden place. Yeah, yeah. to me then well, then like her nudity or like. General well, because the cigarette burn looks like a nipple, and it plays like a nipple. You know what I mean? Like the cigarette burn on her on her breast is really, like, it's almost like she's she's covering herself up, but it's almost like she is exposing herself in that second. You know what no, I mean? No, I don't. I don't necessarily think it's it's the cigarette. I think the cigarette burn just kind of plays into the state of Maxons for me. But the showing of like her stretch marks and just like just being comfortable with that plays into a role of like the body, like plays into the. Like, I, I don't want to use the word imperfection because, like, stretch marks right. are awesome. Um, but, like, well, I'm a fan. But it just, uh, it plays into a vulnerability. Well, it's, they're so, it's, it's, it's very vulnerable and exposed. So that's where I would say that my feelings about this movie is related more to the body than the vulnerability. It's the idea that you can change that stuff. That that the nature of your body is changeable. That you can move your nipple around. You know what I mean? It's a movie in which the person themselves, through their interaction with video, which is fucking stupid. <laughs> like, you know, from 2019 to, like, Videodrome. Well, like, the, the video idea of it, because they're just, I mean, they're hammering on the video, which must oh, yeah. have seemed so new and... Weird and I mean, it's, it's novel at the time. It's something that contextually works has. It's from a media thing. perspective, yeah. yeah. I've always seen it as relating more to something like um, the early work of Don DeLillo. So, like Great Jones Street, or more specifically, Running Dog, which, if, um, if Running Dog is about this um, secret tape. That's supposed to exist. Is that a novel of his? Or it's a novel, novel? yeah. Okay. It's an earlier novel. So it's a secret tape of, of Hitler in his bunker. Like, 
and nobody knows what's on this tape. People assume they've talked about what's on this tape. Like they're trying to find this tape. Um, you know, and that's running dog is, is, um, the name of a magazine that's supposed to be like Rolling Stone and like Rolling Stone back in the seventies was like a thing that meant something. And they were going to try to uncover this, this, you know, secret Hitler tape and it was going to change things. And everything gets really weird. You know what I mean? Just like in Videodrome, everything gets fucking bizarre. You know what I mean? It starts in one place and then the world opens up and everything gets really surreal and well, it's really kind of like strange. 1666 too, right? Um, like does that kind of like starts in one place and kind of everything? Unravels. Yeah, well, so that's where I would uh, my next thing is in which you might agree with is like it reads like a J.G. Ballard short story or novel. Mm. You know what I mean? Where it's just it's we've entered this new vaguely surrealist world where there are cathode ray missions where they're doling out like hits of television, like they're doling out methadone in certain places, um, where you know you're looking for the most extreme thing, and I'm gonna this. If I would say, I was just reading a thing that was kind of anti-David Foster Wallace, which is fine because I don't love David Foster Wallace. But I would assume that David Foster Wallace had seen Videodrome a bunch of times and was just like, oh, yeah, I'll just steal that for Infinite Jest. And I'll just put this, like, postmodernist twist on it and I'll make it more literary. And, Do you think you Infinite know, Jest is like Gravity's that. Rainbow and that nobody's read it? Yeah. <laughs> Good line in Knives Out. That, no, really. That was a great oh, <laughs> it's a book, right? Yeah. yeah. I haven't read it. Nobody, nobody has. has. But that's a great description afterwards. But then, on top of that, so the thing with Videodrome, it's one of the reasons I was happy to have this because it's one of these movies that kind of exists, like in, just like the cockles, as Dennis like, Leary like would say, nascently in my head. So, I as I've acquired new knowledge about art and things like that, I've constantly been able to put it in context with Videodrome. So. One of the things I think that David Cronenberg probably saw when he was making Videodrome was like the um, the visual artist Chris Burden, who is, he him. nailed himself to a Volkswagen Beetle. He had someone shoot him in the arm. Um, he did crazy installation stuff like this. But like the video of him being shot in the arm... And like any pictures you see, it's just like a blank wall. It's just two guys standing in front of a blank wall. You know what I mean? Um, there's a, a like a history of pain underneath all of this stuff. You know what I mean? Where those Videodrome scenes, like the clay wall, the bareness of it, like the starkness of it, is seems vaguely reminiscent of that stuff to me. Um, and that just adds... A, I'll, that adds a level for me. Like making, being able to connect these dots makes it that much more surrealist. And that scene where he's whipping the television is a fucking great scene. Mm -hmm. It's filmed perfectly. It's staged perfectly. It's paced perfectly. Spe specifically in terms of like when like the camera pushes in towards James Woods like with the whip and stuff. And then when it pulls back out, like it's done so well... And it's not morbid, and it's not scary. It's just weirdly thought-provoking. You know what I mean? And I mean, I, it's a it's a weird movie narratively. I mean, you get you get that's some good Mark Irwin cinematography. <laughs> Go on to do American Pie too. Yeah, well, I, but I think the cinematography is actually pretty serviceable for what the movie's supposed to be, which is not a great movie. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are just, you know, just people in a room. 
You know what I mean? Or like really obvious things, like when James Woods shoots his partners with just like that head-on, slow measuring yeah. of the gun. Um, but this this movie exists in like a surrealist tradition for me, um, which obviously it is. There's stomach vaginas. You know what I mean? There's a reason it's two forty-eight in the Criterion Collection. One of the two crit, you know, talking about your Criterion obsession. My this is one of only two Criterion films I own. This that you've ever owned? Ever owned. Wow. This and uh, Naked Lunch. Yeah, I owned Naked Lunch for a time. I've never owned this, though. But the reason I ever read, you know, William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch is because of Videodrome. You know, yeah. Just like, it, it is weird and how that belongs, this... Videodrome belongs to the same type of pantheon as something like, like Naked Lunch. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, just, obviously, it does, like, you know, from a... Because Bullard, Bullard ends up, I mean, obviously Cronenberg's a fan of, like, Bullard and Burroughs and whatnot, because Bullard did Crash, Crash right? Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> you know, um, it makes perfect sense. But he also did High Rise, which was garbage. It surprises me that. Are this... you a fan of High Rise, the book? Not... Yeah, I like High Rise. I, I, like J- I love J.G. Ballard. I mean, he scratches. I have an itch. That's the thing, Mario. I have an itch for this stuff. That's, that, but it's, that's... And, but this just. This, along with Running Dog and with J.G. Ballard stuff, like, scratches that weirdo itch that, like, I kind of want to see, Maybe like, this was, things that deal with this, this type was, of stuff. This was, so, and that's the thing, the same thing with me. This was, but this was the catalyst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the thing that set it all off. And this is the reason we're, something like this could be almost the reason we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> Although you I don't know? think you talked about that initially. I mean, no, no, but, like, the reason, like, if in the sense of, like, it sets off. All the interest. And I'm sure, I mean, it was always there, obviously. But, you know, it it puts me down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. You know, it it leads, something like Videodrome leads to my summer of discontent, as I call it now. Which I've I've talked about casually. And it's not actual summer discontent. It was a great summer. It was just, but it was a summer of of really hard watches and really hard reads. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but it's, it's so enamoring and so... It avails itself to being closer to, not necessarily human, but being closer to, like, understanding as, as a pretty not this sort of guy. Like, sadomasochism and all that. No, like me neither. Fucking thing. No, 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 no. Me neither. Like, 100% am, not. Like, ladies, I'm the most vanilla guy there is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am not going to cut you on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. I will pat you on the shoulder lately. Yeah. Uh, I, will I will dress those wounds. <laughs> I will maybe nibble you. <laughs> um, to where the teeth marks are left for like 20 seconds. Um, but, like, this made me want to delve into, like, this felt like an entryway into the psyche of yeah. the masochistic and into the psyche of the, of the psychotic. And, like, as a kid, you know what? Like, I was into, like, the ideas of, like, like, why do people go to a certain level? Why, what would ever possess a person to go beyond the norm? You know, and this was the thing that was like, oh, David Cronenberg feels like a pretty attached guy. He feels like a guy who's, who's with it, who's not a psychopath. You know, he's a guy who's, who, who has that same curiosity and that same interest. Um, but he likes to dabble in it. Yeah, yeah. he wants to see. He wants, he wants to see he what's underneath. See. He's he's kind of like the protagonist in Revival. You know, he too be yeah, he, pro, he yeah. unfortunately wants to see beyond the veil. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's a great access point to that. As a person who like is very afraid, of, like doesn't want to, doesn't ever want to go on Rotten.com. <laughs> you know, is that website still? I don't know. But that was a terrible website where they should like here's the actual dead. Like I don't want to see. I don't want to see. And I've never. I don't even, see I've that. never looked for that stuff. But I want to see like the mind of the person who wants to see that. And it's funny because my ending point for this, I think, is the films of Lars von Trier for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Where no, that, same thing. He's yeah. opened it up to the point where, like, that's enough. I don't need to see any more of this. You know what I mean? And yeah. it's, I want to see it contextualized. I want to see it in art. Like, uh, or Francisco uh, de Goya is another guy for me. Or, 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 um, or, or a big example for this, uh, somebody I loved before this, and like Unshian Andalou almost made my list, was like Louis Bunnell. Yeah. Like, Louis yep. Bunnell has that same level of sure. like, he's beyond the pale. Like, he's beyond the line for me. Well, the exterminating or, angel. Or, um, or, or uh, Pasolino. Yep, yeah, yeah. yeah well, those become, have become easy to see, but like the exterminating angel for me for a long time, which is in my Roger Ebert book, Roger. Wow, that's a, that's eleven point three fix. This so, is what happens when you drink non-alcoholic beers for a month and then and then drink this beer. <laughs> um, the exterminating angel is in this book, and I first heard of the exterminating angel when reading this book, and I it wasn't. It's kind of like the um, Beau Travail of Bunuel's catalog, where it's just doesn't exist you know what i mean like criterion owns everything else and they just keep pumping out like you know double disc versions of the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and you know whatever and no exterminating angel like just never shows up so you have to hunt you gotta hunt it down or like that me and you know john paul have mentioned this thing before we'd go to we go to phoenix records and and uh waterbury and we'd ask for nick cave and they'd hand us a, from behind the counter, they'd hand us a box. And it would just be full of, like, bootleg stuff and cassettes of bootleg, like, camcorder videos of shows and stuff like that from, like, the birthday party. And, you know, Nick Cave just kicking people in the face in his 20s and just, like, screaming, you know, from her to eternity in people's faces. Um, you want to, it makes you want to dig for that stuff. It makes you want to go underneath all the normal life and see what's there and unfortunately for some people they're just like okay but what's under that yeah and i don't want to see what's under that but what's good but like i said what's good about this movie is it made me want to see underneath that slightly but it also made me want to see like what is it about this that made me want to see beneath it and it was the noir to tie which made me like which which opened up a fucking world of like no like you know this noir is like as much as i talk about horror noir is my fucking shit mm-hmm. like noir is like i would watch a noir movie any day over like you can look at my top three you can look at my top three and be like no top four and be like yeah noir is this thing mm-hmm. like i my top four is basically all subtext of noir um i mean to tie these two movies together the part of Sounds of the lambs that always the part of Sounds of the lambs that always kind of fascinated me was when Chilton tells Clarice that when he killed he killed some guy you know what I mean and that oh oh, he faked a heart attack right he faked a heart attack and they like they got him in the hospital blah blah blah, and he ate that guy's tongue and his heart rate never went above 80 you know what I mean and then when they when he kills those two guards, he just like beats him with the billy club while the music is smiling. playing. And he's just like, ah. 
you know, it's just that calmness. You know what I mean? I, I think I've always wanted to understand that. Like why? How does that work? How does that person like that function? Because it's scary as shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like the same thing with a normal person. It's terrifying. Right. And you understand why. And for all the ridiculousness of, all the modern ridiculousness of Videodrome, you know what I mean? And I'm very, I'm actually really surprised they haven't remade this movie. And it's like the Howard Shore music that kind of got me thinking when I was watching it again um, to do this. Like, that they haven't, because there's like a really, there's a, a terrible, and I mean terrible in a good way, like a minimalist new version of this that they could do very easily. And I'm surprised Blumhouse hasn't like jumped all over this. You know what I mean? Because nope. YouTube seems if one of our to... If one of our 20-some listeners is Jason Bloom and he does that, I'm killing you on the last episode. I'm sorry. But don't you... Isn't it surprising that no one's remade this movie? Uh, I, that hadn't popped in my head, and now that it has, I hate you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's like the under... Um, the underneath stuff. Mm. Like whatever's yeah. underneath there. We... And the noir does that, you know what I mean? Because there's regular life, and then in, inevitably in every noir film, someone has to go under. under regular life to get whatever they need done, done, or to find out whatever they need to find out. Um, and that inevitably leads them a step lower, you know what I mean? And then a step lower, and then a step lower, and that's where the drama comes from. Um, this, is, this is the, yeah, the palpable underbelly for an 80s or 90s kid. Like, like this is what that, you know... This is what Videodrome is. It is the way in which your access point to if you want that. Like, if you want to see the first step of that. I'm going to point to in the... My music version of this was like Nine Inch Nails for the longest time. So, like, when the Downward Spiral came out, I was just, like, terrified of the Downward Spiral. I was terrified of the artwork in it. Like with this, like the blood bird feathers and like whatever is very conceptual. I hope you're not gonna ask me what my music version is because I don't, I don't have that. No, no, but like I, I went through. I've gone through this with like lots of different forms of art, with mm. books and like, um, you know, uh, we talked, we talked about the painted bird. I was like, I really, I like, I'm kind we're, of. Obs- we're both excited, but we're both fucking terrified. Yeah, of like it. I'm, I'm, I've always been kind of. It was obsessed. like House that Jack built. Yeah, just like House of Jack Belt. I've always been kind this of This podcast should just be called the House of Jack Belt podcast. We're going to have to re- go back to it. Is it making your list for the, cen- um, the century? It yeah, might, it might. Um, I've always been obsessed with those kind of Holocaust books that don't really deal with the Holocaust like straight on, but they deal with it like metaphorically. And they're just so like um, um, the kindly ones that Brian, uh, Brian Luttrell. That came out uh, uh, looks like a nine hundred page book, but it's just fucking horrible. Or uh, William H. Gass horrible, tunnel, like in a just in a in just like horrible things happen in a yeah. painted bird sense. Yeah, you can't say horrible and like not because we often say horrible in a bad way. But no, no, but horrible, like just yeah. horrible and like a painted bird sense, horrible in like a large venture sense. Because it go, I I don't ever experience life on that. Yeah, we're pretty, and maybe I don't want, and I don't want no, we're to. Pretty, we're pretty entitled middle class white guys. But every once in a while, you want to find it. It is a it is a key moment. It is a bleach to in the find eye. Yeah, that Malaysian feed. Yeah, the fuzzy Malaysian feed of like something happening. You know what I mean? That's coming from Pittsburgh. That's that's coming. From, fucking Pittsburgh, man. They did give us like that really good sandwich that has like fries on it though. So 
My sister-in-law is from Pittsburgh. You give and you get. So I, I should ask her about what's going on down there. She's seen the video drone. That's what happens when you have three rivers meet. You can only That's have true. two rivers. Yeah. Two rivers is enough rivers. Well, how, what rivers are those? The Allegheny? Is that one of the rivers? I don't know. One of them is the Phillip Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This if podcast you, is too long. If you want to talk about the San Diego Chargers. He's from the San Diego Chargers, right? No, uh, they're not San Diego anymore. Oh, the Los Angeles, Los Angeles Chargers. Chargers. Is he still playing? Yeah. I yeah. always liked Philip Rivers. I don't know why. Like, if, we're, if we start out this Videodrome episode with the, the quarterback who I think is a real piece of shit, we're going to finish it with, like, I always kind of like, was like, Philip Rivers seems like a But they're okay the guy. same draft class. It was Rivers, Roethlisberger, and Eli Manning. Rivers doesn't have a, a ring yet, does he? No, he's the one of them. He's still a playing? He's still a playing, yeah. <laughs> Are they are they in contention? Is he still on the Chargers? Yeah, they're not in contention this year. No. They were good last year. Does he have a Does he have a couple years left in him? Or? He has nine kids. Did you know that? Oh, so he's he's very Christian. I don't know if he's Christian. He's got nine kids. You have you do not not have nine kids. I'm just saying I haven't Christian. heard specifically that he's very as a Christian, Christian. You do not have nine kids and don't like the only reason I'm not having any kids is because like I have to make up for all the other Christians who are crazy people. Yeah. If you want to be mad at that comment, you can. <laughs> Text us at Film Pivotal. Um, or you can go to Pivotal Film. Uh, you can email us at Pivotal Tweet Film. us, by the way, not text us. Yeah. Is that what you said? Do you want to give them a place us. that you can text us? Yeah, you can text me at my personal phone um, number. Or you can go to Pivotal Film Podcast at gmail.com uh, to tell us how terrible we are and everything. Or you can go to PivotalFilm.com where we have a list of the movies uh, that we've talked about and links to the episodes and how to subscribe and a list of the beers that we drank. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to post our best of lists. Woo! Best of. Very excited. A lot of, lot of best ofs coming up. A lot of best ofs, yeah. And then we're going to do, um, in two, we're going to do one more list episode. Two more list episodes? One more? Episode. We're ending on 36. We're going to try. I don't, I, don't, what you said. I don't think we can now. Well, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Um, but yeah, lots of movies coming out. Go see one. Drink a beer. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>